Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, everyone. It's Michael Nesmith on the Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. It's the end of the world, and I feel fine, diggers. I do, and... uh, I don't know. I hope you do as well. I hope you are surviving uh, week three for us here out in California of hunkering down in our pods. Uh, and it's it's been not so bad. Um, I mean, I do work from home quite a bit, and so that's remained the same. Um, you know, we, my family, has limited our exposure and, uh, you know, we practice social distancing. Um, uh, I guess now they want to want us to call it physical distancing. Um, so whatever you want to say, we are doing our part. And I hope you are as well. Remember, it's it's not just about you, but who you might spread the virus to that will become horribly sick or even die. Uh, nobody wants that on their conscience uh keep going to cdc.gov or uh who.int for all the best medical information available stay safe stay sane while we get through this pandemic of course you know get the supplies you need uh but let's not hoard to the detriment of everyone else uh there are not supply line shortages as of yet uh and if everyone plays it cool there shouldn't be any for several weeks uh which is what we need uh if everyone realizes the importance of doing the right thing so food water shelter y'all got the internet so work and entertainment is available for many of us uh, geez, imagine if this happened in like the 1980s or something. <laughs> also, you know, keep up with your neighbors. Um, I am. Um, we've got a little newsletter that goes around once a week. Uh, keeping the family units in place. Uh, and if you can, uh, help those around uh, you in need. Um, and of course, hey, uh, if you are older than 18 and need something to spice up the bedroom, uh, help us out here at Pantheon by going to adamandeve.com. Free stuff. It's awesome. Um, and free stuff to spice up the bedroom is even better. Select almost any single item for 50% off. 
Uh, and by the way, uh, Adam and Eve loads up on the free stuff at checkout. Enter the code D-I-G-S, digs, and get 10 uh, wild and wicked free gifts. You get, uh, uh, geez, I don't know. You go and figure it out. Pick whatever you want. Um, there's some good stuff uh, at Adam and Eve, uh, and uh, they are the number one retailer for, you know, that stuff. <laughs> Plus, you get free shipping. That's D-I-G-S digs at adamandeve.com for all your um, spicy needs. All right. Hey, one more thing. Uh, I, I want to give a quick shout out to Kenny Wymore uh, for the Patreon pledge. Um, thank you, Kenny. We greatly appreciate it. You, too, can help by adding your own pledge to Pantheon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. Uh, I can tell you uh, those donations help. It's not a lot, um, but, you know, we have some expenses around here. Um, Adam and Eve is helping. Uh, uh, we got our first report. Uh, apparently, um, you guys uh, they are digging it, so uh, that's great. Anyway, I just wanted to call out Kenny uh, and say thank you uh, very much. All right, get you some good stuff. Get up and get on the good foot. Let's get to the show. Ow! I mean, in these times, uh, I just cannot think of anything better to give you diggers than a long discussion about James Brown. If that first song did not get your blood pumping, well, you need to check your pulse. Um, with us today is Mr. Alan Leeds, former tour manager for Mr. Brown. And while we will spend almost the entirety of his work with the Godfather of Soul. Alan also served as tour manager for Prince, D'Angelo, and Chris Rock uh, over his years in the business. Born into a New York Jewish family, he fell in love with black radio uh, and records from a very early age. After a quick stint in Milwaukee, his father was transferred to Richmond, Virginia. It's here Alan found Mecca. From an early age, he would venture into the segregated side of town to buy the cherished records that he really needed to add to his collection. There he made friends and ended up working in the local black radio station, WANT, that only had a daytime license. Alan was just 18. 
He first met Mr. Brown when he was allowed to interview him before a Richmond concert. Uh, a few years later, he went on to work for him, uh, and, well, the rest is history, and can now be found in his book, There Was a Time, James Brown, The Chitlin Circuit, and Me, from Post Hill Press. Uh, and by the way, Alan is a really strong writer. Uh, it is a fun and enlightening book. As for James Brown, well, <laughs> I'd uh, rather refer you to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Episode 4, The Change of the Guard, to get his story from our perspective. Of course, we will dive deep into Mr. Brown and all the recollections of Mr. Leeds right now. Let's get to it and get on the good foot with Alan Leeds. I don't care! about your past I just want help I love to last I don't care darling about your thoughts I just want to satisfy your faults you kiss me when you mess me hold my hand make me understand I think I'm in a cold spot Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Mr. Leeds. How are you doing today? Well, thank you, Mr. Swain. Let's start because <laughs> I'm, I'm Alan and you're Christian, if that's okay. Of course, okay. But, but, but we know, uh, you know uh, anybody who knows of Mr. Brown, it is always the Mr. Uh, at first, this is, right? This is, this is very true, very, very true. It, was, um, it took some getting used to because I knew him as a, as a disc jockey in Virginia when I first met him, and, and it was easy to call him James without knowing the the, the rules of the <laughs> right, of the right, camp, right. and um, and he never corrected me until I went to work for him. Well, that, that's a totally became, different can of worms going to work for exact, him. So, yeah, exactly, we'll and then, but 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 it was always reciprocal. I mean, it was always Mister Lee, yes. and so it was yeah. you know everybody in the camp was a Mister. Oh, so Mister Bird, it, some, yeah, oh exactly, yeah, it was always, yes, exactly. Always, yeah. but, you know, it, it was a little funny sometimes when he wasn't around because some of us became very close friends socially as, as well as just workmates. And it would be kind of awkward if we were out at a bar having a drink at night. And it would be like, you know, Mr. Nolan, Mr. Patton, Mr. You know. And, Everybody and think like, you work what? for the government or something like that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it was as, as, as if we were strangers just hanging out together. It was, you know, kind of, right. kind, of right. kind of a little... Uh, Unnecessarily formal in some context, but yeah. uh, but it made sense in the in the James Brown world. It made sense because oh, yeah. um, you know this this, this was the sixties, and um, you know he was fighting for respect not just as an artist but as a businessman. Yes, and uh, you know he once told me he said he said Mr. Lee everybody used to call me Jimmy. 
And my name was never even Jimmy, it was James. He said, but I realized if I was going to get respect in the business world, it was going to have to be Mr. And if we all call each other Mr., then there's no, there's no mistakes. There's no second-guessing anybody's intent, and um, we can just move forward as grown men and do business with each other. So it, it really, given the racial context of things back then, Brilliant. it made a lot of sense, yeah. and it served him well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my, my first question is, is it fair to say, uh, you know, looking back into the this hugely successful latter half of the 20th century music world, uh, that there, you know, there's a handful of hugely influential artists that we can identify now. You know, obviously in real time and for decades, there are the Beatles and, you know, for white kids uh, in the now giant jam band circuit, you know, you can point to the Grateful Dead, you know, but it seems like today's most popular music, that being hip hop and rap, you'd have to make James Brown perhaps even more important than just about anybody else, wouldn't you say? No question. No, no, no question. I mean, the, the, the roots of so much music go back to things that he innovated. And sometimes it's not so immediately recognizable. I mean, I could argue that bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers wouldn't have been what they were if it hadn't have been for the fact that they grew up listening to James Brown. Without doubt. Um, you know, so, so it, it goes beyond just hip hop and R&B, but it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I think often of Ray Charles as well, who kind of preceded James as the king of the R&B world until he crossed over into the pop world. Yeah, and, and country. And, and country and, and, and so on. But, um, you know, things that Ray Charles did in his early records when he was on Atlantic in the 50s and the uh, you know that that then sounded very very revolutionary oh, on the radio. Secularizing gospel music. Exactly. No, nobody had dared do that no. before. Oh, and no. his and his his style of piano playing was so influential that it's almost become clicheish now. So you hear somebody play piano a certain way, and if you're my age, you immediately say, "Okay, they got that from Ray Charles." Right. But the piano player may not know he got it from Ray Charles because this thing has been passed down generation after generation after generation, yeah. and it's kind of the same thing with James Brown and his funk, um, because it's it's now become, you know, those d- musical devices have just become part of the common vocabulary of of popular music and arguably even jazz beyond hip-hop and r&b and and pop and jam bands and i mean the the whole idea of jamming on a record had really never been done before i mean this is a guy that was famous for oh there's part one and there's part two (laughs) and part two would invariably just be a, a vamp that was exciting and building in intensity and there'd be a Maceo Parker tenor solo and it would just ramp up. And, um, you know, I remember musician friends of mine back in the sixties who said, well, that's not a song and almost were dissing it as if that's not a song. It's just a vamp. And it's like, yeah, but it works. <laughs> you know, you can put whatever name on it you want, but he's selling a million copies of this record. Everybody in the world is dancing to it, and every band is trying to steal his licks. So maybe it's not a song in the traditional, you know, Tin Pan Alley sense, but, um, you know, we're still listening to Cold Sweat 50 years later, so something was happening. 
Yeah. Oh, and then oh, once, you know, once you started getting into the hip hop world with the DJs, you know, they would constantly go back to those those particular pieces because that's where the hook was that got the dancers up and, and, and jumping. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and and of course, the rhythmic components, particularly of the DJs who were who were not practicing musicians or didn't perform with live musicians. Um, if if you wanted a track that was going to work and was going to inspire your your flow, not to mention the dancers on the dance floor, then you know go, go to the innovator. Go to the <laughs> yeah, you know right, this, right. Is, this is a guy. Who, even if you didn't like James Brown, you couldn't help but dance. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you put you put just about any James Brown song on, and, you, and your feet are just going to start tapping and then moving uh, and grooving. Exactly. So you know, exactly. I, I can think of three times when James Brown changed the course of music. First, first is that that you know, along with Ray Charles, that gospel theme R and B. You know, obviously, sure. please please me in 1956 at the birth of rock and roll, uh, and then soul uh, in the 1960s. Soul right. Brother number one, obviously, and then of course the invention of funk. Does that sound about right to you? It, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he he was, uh, you know, I, I I think of really it's hard to think of anybody else. Uh, I mean, to some degree, Stevie Wonder, which, who ev- evolved as he grew up, mm-hmm. but you know, Stevie pretty much is, and this is certainly not a negative in any way, shape, or form. But I mean, since Stevie's been an adult, he's just kind of stayed Stevie, and that's more than enough for those of us who appreciate Stevie <laughs> Wonder. But but it's it's not like he really changed the whole course of of black music. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know why I pulled him out of this guy because I don't want to sound negative on. Oh, please don't hate on me if you're no, a Stevie no, no, Wonder no. fan. I, I, I'm sure but, you agree sonically. Um, uh, you know, especially uh, his use of synthesizers uh, was of course, pretty incredible of, of in, course. in that that of that course. But, but that that was kind of an evolution that yeah. was going to happen anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. not, nonetheless, my point being is that it's the only person in black music that I can think of who really really reinvented himself as successfully and as frequently as James Brown is probably Miles Davis. Right, right. In the, in the sense that you could take records from different periods. and Yes, mm-hmm. take records from different periods of their careers and you wouldn't even necessarily think it's the same artist. Right. I mean, you know, Brown came up as part of what was basically a Southern Gospel doo-wop group. The Famous Flames were a singing group. Yeah. And there were five members that needed group vocals. Now he was the logical lead singer because he had the the, the the charisma and the stage presence and everything else. I mean, I don't think any of those five guys, the other four guys, you know, argued the fact that he was going to be the one to carry him. Um, but you, you have that, as, as you say, that period, which is marked by please, 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 and try me and so on. And then as, as the gospel influence in the music really took over, he became Soul Brother Number 1 and the first Live at the Apollo album, which ah, came out seminal. in early yeah. 1963, mm-hmm. um, still looked at as one of the greatest live albums of all time. And, and when you really think about it, on that whole album, there's, there's only two upbeat songs. Right. Right, right. Everything right. else is slow. Yeah, grabbing He's grabbing for the women out in the audience on that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it, and it worked. And yeah. so, so there was that period. And then, of course, as, as he got more successful, he was able to afford a bigger band with a higher quality of musicians. And he fed off that just as they fed off him. 
And together, he and Alfred Ellis and Maceo Parker, Fred Wesley, and all of these brilliant musicians, I could name a bunch more. Obviously, Clyde, Funky, Drummer, Stubblefield, oh, yeah. and Jabo Starks. Um, I mean, you looked up and suddenly the vamp that used to be the little tail end on the fade out of the singles had become the song. Right. And so you have, from Papa's Got a Brand New Bag On, you have this idea that, that again, you could sacrifice the old song forms and just create this exciting piece of music that built in intensity and had had tension and release built into it for excitement's sake and um, what we now call funk. So there again, you know, Cold Sweat sounds nothing like Live at the Apollo 1, mm -hmm. which sounds nothing like the original 45s with the singing group, and you just realize this is a guy who was creatively restless. And, and constantly in tune with where the music was going and determined to be at the forefront. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing what he was able to do, uh, you know, at, at least until the mid 70s uh, when when, you know, I, you know, by then, he, you know, he's in the in the biz for 20 plus years, uh, you know, so it's not surprising that uh, he was un, unable to continue that success and i think we'll discuss on maybe what some of those reasons uh were as we we go along here but let's let's get the early history of how you came to you know what i consider the purest form of american music that being all the music of african americans which is perhaps mm -hmm. the single greatest contribution to cultural history that america will be remembered for you know I, yeah i think that's hard to argue with yeah i agree i i, I think your world goes from Black and white to color uh, is is hearing for the first time Long Tall Sally on the Alan Freed radio show. Is that right? Yes, that, that's that's actually true. That was the wake up call. It was um, I was would have been oh golly, I guess around nine years old, give or take a year, and um, I discovered Little Richard through the Alan Freed radio show, and um, was just flabbergasted. I'd never heard anything like it. Wow. And, a man who you know, can't be denied, uh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you know, I was familiar with already into music, uh -huh. um, and I had a couple of 45s by Bill Haley in the comments. I didn't realize that they were covers of tunes that had first been done by R&B artists, but, you know, they were, they were rocking it, and they made me move around a little bit. And a couple of Elvis's very early records, Heartbreak Hotel, and a couple of those. And I appreciated the energy and everything. So I was, I was, you know, a born rock and roller of that era. But once I heard Long Tall Sally, it was like, okay, this is something different. This is, this is like everything else I've heard put on steroids. Right. And I had to, had to get the record. And mind you, this is a nine-year-old kid, so it's like I'm not the least bit intellectual about any of this. I just enjoy listening to music. It was just an emotional so, impact. Totally. Just just pure emotions, and, and in, in retrospect, emotions that I didn't even understand, because I suppose some of them were sexual, some of them, you know, what the hell. But you're nine years old, you just know you like something. <laughs> right. And it sounds pretty wild, so, yeah. it's, you know, I was a little bit of a rebel, as a lot of kids were. And um, the idea that it was something that my parents might not be into kind of a, was a, a secondary appeal. But, um, you know, anyway, I badgered my mother to take me to the record store to get this, this bizarre record and brought it home. And, um, and she was dying to know what it was that I was so eager to get hold of. So I played the record for her and she just was a deer in the headlights. She was like, 
Really? This is, uh, yeah. This is yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, know, you know, I know imagine the feeling. <laughs> a, imagine a 35-year-old white woman yeah. who was born and raised in Minnesota right. in the 1950s listening to Little Richard for the first time. And, um, you know, she just didn't get it. Now, to her credit, she didn't put it down. She didn't make a face. She didn't make fun of me for liking it which I probably would have done if I had been the parent in that scenario. But, you know, so to her credit, she just indulged me, and she says, well, if that's your cup of tea, go ahead and drink it. You know, that's she, nice. she, Yeah, but um, I, I think if she could have understood the lyrics, she might have had a reaction, but nobody could understand <laughs> the lyrics. <laughs> Little Richard yeah. sang so fast. Yeah, there was no internet and to go was, look him up uh, and say, exactly. Uh, and say yeah, oh, oh like my he, God. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah there, was, there was no Googling the lyrics at that right. point. So, no, so no. I skated through that. But, um, yeah, that was my wake-up call. And okay. from then on, about a year later, I discovered a black radio station. Um, up until then, like every other kid I went to school with, I was listening to Top 40 radio which would play rock and roll, but would also mix in records by Pat Boone and Debbie Reynolds and Frankie Avalon. And, oh, you the know, standard these... AM uh, playlists of just yeah, about everything. Exactly, exactly, yeah. which was remarkably mixed in yeah. terms of the style of music. I mean, there was no consistency stylistically, except these were the top 40 singles. So yeah. it didn't matter what they were, they would play them. Yeah. And I would just wait for the ones I liked, and there were a lot of them I didn't couldn't have cared less about, but then I discovered this black radio station, and all of a sudden, here's a radio station, and I like every record they're playing, and most of the artists I'd never freaking heard for, heard of, you know, it was uh -huh. like, yeah, I knew who Fats Domino was, because he had crossed over to pop, I knew who Little Richard was by then, I picked up another couple Little Richard records along the way, but all of a sudden, there's people like, like the Flamingos, and the Moon Glows, and and uh, Roy Brown and Huey Smith and the Clowns. And I'm like, who are these people? And it, 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 I think what appealed to me as much as the music was the fact that there was this other universe that in the 50s, most of white America knew absolutely nothing about. Well, on that, purpose, that these, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 yeah for, for all kinds of historical reasons. It just was, you know, a more segregated world then. Mm -hmm. And not that we still don't have problems, but, you know, at, at that point, um, the technology was such that information didn't travel unless you really, really sought it out. Yeah, you, you, had, know, to go, you actually kind of, had to go and find it, and then you had to make choices. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. you mentioned about the the record. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a record was not cheap, and uh, you know, you didn't have disposable income that you could just go and pick up whatever you want. You certainly didn't have something like Spotify, where every song in the world is available at you know your fingertips. Exactly. So you'd have to go to the record shops, and then eventually you'd, you'd discover the fact that the record shop you go to doesn't even carry these records that you're looking for now. The no. ones you hear on black yeah. radio, yeah. And they they don't know who Huey Smith and the Clowns are. <laughs> right. They have right. no clue. Right. You know. Right. Right. So it's like now I got to find a record store that has the black clientele. Yeah. And and you know, so it it turns into this whole thing where you're not just discovering the music that you like. But you're also gradually becoming exposed to the culture that produces that music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my case, there was a fascination with the culture as much as there was with the music. It, it, it evolved into that because, as I said, it's like there's this whole other part of America 
that we know nothing. We're not told about. And and it's it's just like how crazy is this? And then I would hear advertisements for for nightclubs and and concerts that you only heard on the black radio station. And I would say, wait a minute, you mean this guy Ray Charles and Huey Smith and the Clowns? They're actually playing in town this weekend, and there's nothing in the newspaper, and there's nothing on the top forty radio station. I mean. Nobody knows, but obviously the black community knew because yep. you know. Well, they had like their own radio stations and their own newspapers, exactly. unfortunately. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the the whole idea that this was happening right under my feet, um, you know, excited to use yeah. a cliche on the other side of the tracks. Yeah. Um, was just bewildering to me, and and I wasn't old enough or or sophisticated enough or educated enough yet to realize the other side of that coin that there was this whole white America that was inaccessible to blacks. Right. You know, I, I, I didn't get the significance of the political significance of that. Of course. And the, impa- young, and the impact that it had yeah. on everything from education to job opportunities and so on. I, all I knew was that there was this music over there that I did not have access to. And it didn't make sense to me. Yeah. It just and, didn't make sense. And you wanted more. Exactly. Right, right. And I think you, yeah. you kind of had a little leg up uh, with Uncle Mel. No question. No question. Because um, my uncle was program director of WINS, 1010 Winds, New York, for those in the, in the city, which is now an all-news station and has been for years. But back in the 50s was the rock and roll radio station in New York for a better part of uh, six or seven years until other stations started catching up and became competitive. But at any rate, he was the program director of WINS in the 50s. And their staff of disc jockeys included Alan Freed, Cousin Brucey, Bruce Murrow, Murray the K. Oh, wow. All of these guys yeah. became legends. Yep. And and many of them, you know, as, as disc jockeys do, they would move on to other radio stations and so on. But at one point, all three of those guys were on WINS in New York. And what my uncle would do was periodically box up, oh, just pick a number, say 145s from their record library, and just send them to me. Wow, nice. And, I mean, you talk about crate digging. The yeah. mailman brought this shit. <laughs> my yeah. crate digger was the mailman. <laughs> and, you know, maybe once a month I would get this, this cardboard box full of 45s, and they were either duplicates of the hit records that the station played or they were odd records that, for whatever reason, the station didn't play. Many of which turned out to be very good, and it was it was a mix. It wasn't just black music, but it was heavy on black music because Uncle Mel knew that I liked R and B by then. And but there were rockabilly records. There were you know a lot of lot of obscure records on the Sun label and the Specialty label and Chess records. I mean, it was just this incredible variety of music that I would just go through and discover these artists and these styles of music that, that, you know, and then I'd go to school and everybody'd be talking about Elvis. And I'm like, yeah, Elvis is cool, but, you know. Check out have this. You heard of, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. Have you, have oh. you heard of Roy Orbison yet? Uh-huh. No, not yet. But, you know, it was that kind of a thing. So I didn't really have anybody at school I could relate to about this music. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit.
And now back to the program. Well, did, did you become like the music nerd in your school? I'm sure I was. Um, I, to be quite honest, I kind of became a loner mm-hmm. because for a variety of reasons, we, our family, I was born in, in New York, but um, we went to school to Milwaukee. in Milwaukee, right. exactly. Right. And, and uh, my father was in the department store business, and as his career moved up and up, he would move to different companies for a better position and so on. Yeah. So uh, my grade school years were in Milwaukee. And then my junior high years were in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, let's let's and, talk a little bit about that. So you you moved to the south, um, in, right? You know, the capital of the old Confederacy, Richmond, exactly. Virginia. Uh, that just had to have been an insane culture shock for you, a native New Yorker now by way of Milwaukee, heading south during Jim Crow. It must have been yes. really eye opening for you. Yeah. Well, it, it was actually. Let's see. We moved to Richmond in 1959, so it was really at the at the onset of civil of, rights. I mean, this, this, yeah. This, I mean, obviously, civil rights struggle had been going on for years in various shapes and forms, but it was starting to really get attention. Yeah. Yeah. Get, and, and, tra- gain traction. Yes. Exactly. So, so I was in Richmond during the lunch counter sit lunch counter sit ins and the and the Freedom Riders going down south. It was that era. Mm-hmm. And um, for somebody who up north, I mean, there were a handful of black kids in my school as a kid. Um, but you know, when you're a kid, you don't you don't think about that stuff un- unless you're brought up with very prejudiced. No, race, racism is a it. learned uh, behavior. Exactly. You're not born that way. Uh, exactly. And and yeah. and. and uh, I'm grateful I actually, that I, I actually consider it a mental condition, but um, yeah, that's a, yeah, a whole well, other argument. That, that's a whole other whole other discussion. But um, you know, I I was blessed to be brought up in a household where I was not taught racism, anything yeah. but. And uh, long and short of it is to run into it, not to mention anti-Semitism, because I happen to be Jewish, well, yeah, and that was also yeah, something let's, that, that... Let's say, while, while you weren't subjected to the institutionalized racism that our black brothers and sisters endured, you know, you too had bouts of racism yourself. Yeah, but I had never experienced it in Milwaukee. Now, right. had we stayed there, I'm sure I would have. Milwaukee is hardly the most liberal city in the world. Yeah. yeah. So so some of it was just age-related. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in Richmond, it's in your face. Right, and it must, and, and and to Richmond's credit, it wasn't. Let's 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 be honest. Richmond is in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's South and then there's Deep South. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But as you say, it was the capital of the Confederacy. Their culture was a little more genteel. They weren't going to be out in the streets with hoses and and you know, the KKK wasn't marching up and down the middle of town. It, Richmonders were kind of taught, even the heavily racist Richmonders, of which there were way too many, but they were still taught to be civil. There was this, a civility there that kind of, as long as nobody got out of hand, it was a controlled environment. But but I mean, the, the racism, I mean, just, just the idea that I would be a teenager walking down Broad Street, which was the main, still is the main drag of downtown Richmond, and noticed that older black men would step off the curb to let me walk by. And this is on a sidewalk where there was plenty of room. I mean, you know, it was, and, and I'm like, the first time it happened, I just thought it was somebody who had reason to step off the curb. I didn't give it a thought, but it became noticeable. And of course, young black people didn't do that, but the older ones did. Mm. And I was, I was, you know, 
I was awestruck. And then once I realized what that signified, then I was tempted to say, please don't do that. Keep walking. You know, (laughs) you don't have to do that. But, of course, that would have just. Oh, no, you would have put them in danger. Exactly. Or, 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 Or at best humiliated them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so out of respect, you don't say anything. But, I mean, it was, you know, it, it was noticeable that easily. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, the, the, the fact that restaurants weren't in it, agreed. I mean, that happened during the time I lived in Richmond. And I remember when the Civil Rights Bill was passed and um, all of a sudden uh, blacks were at least legally welcome in restaurants or to mix in theaters and sit on the sit in the, in the first floor. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I was, and then of course the schools becoming integrated and, um, you know, I vividly remember kids in my school the year before we, we and I can't remember which year this was, it was in the mid sixties. And, um, I want to say it was around 63, 64, but somebody has to do the research to tell me. And, um, kids that I was going to school with, with the, the conversation in the cafeteria at lunch would be, well, my parents ain't going to let me come back to public schools next year once they're integrated. I'm going to private school. As if that was a, that was a badge of honor, that their parents thought enough of them that they wouldn't let them go to school with black kids. That's crazy. And, um, and quite honestly, the next year, all those kids were back. Yeah. <laughs> they were yeah. just talking yeah. shit. Yeah. You uh, know? Of course. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, they all yeah. came back. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but this, this is what... I encountered, and um, and yeah, it was confusing. To, you know, to say that. I mean, you know, and the more I the more I read about it, of course, this all just drove me to start reading books. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'm re- reading Baldwin and Richard Wright, and wow. you know, d- d- doing a, a, a Black Culture 101 to try to get a sense of where all this comes from. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're we're studying Virginia state history in junior high school, and there's like one page about slavery and talks about how Virginia slaves were so happy to be in Virginia as opposed to other states, you know. And and I'm like, whoa, (laughs) what have I walked into here, you know. There's still um, some of that lingering around uh, in uh, Oh, no, well, more today than 10 years ago, unfortunately. I mean, that, too, is a whole other conversation. Right, um, right, right. But one good thing about being in Richmond was you were able to find cheap records uh, because you, uh, you know, were willing to venture to the other side of town. Uh, And I think by yourself as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was old enough and bold enough that it's like, okay, I want these records. And where do I get them? (laughs) You know, where do I get them? So if I got to walk two blocks into the hood to get them, I'm going to do it. And it's not like I went there at twelve midnight, but you know, at twelve noon on a sunny day, it's like, you know, what the hell's going to happen to me? I'm going to get some records. And um, it's exactly what happened. So I uh, discovered them. Tell the story about the the first record store that you walk into, uh, well, and, the, the, and how they treat you. Yeah, the, there's there's a there's a store, and last time I was in Richmond, there's it's, it's moved, but there's there's still a Barky's record store. Awesome. And Barky was a a, a, a black businessman who had his own record store. And um, it was just two blocks from Broad Street, so I figured this was close enough. It's safe, you know. So I'll, I'll just just walk back there, and um, so I did. And one of the ways to get back there was to walk through a block-long drugstore that was called Standard Drugs, 
and the, the front of the store was on Broad Street. It catered to both whites and blacks, and, and um, you know, just was a big drugstore. And if you walked through the store, there was an exit out the back onto, I think that's Marshall Street. At any rate, as I got out the back, all of a sudden you don't see any more white people. Everybody is out the backside because now you're in the hood. You're, you're one block into the hood. And um, and I heard music in the air. I mean, I heard music, and, and I didn't realize, I couldn't recognize exactly what it was yet, but as I kept walking and kept walking, and the music got closer and closer, it was James Brown's 45 of Night Train. Oh. And, you know, just, just providence that it's a James Brown record, because it could have been Sam Cooke or Jackie Wilson or God oh, knows who else. The universe is talking to you. Exactly, right. uh -huh. exactly. And, of course, the, the, it was coming from a speaker that was hung on the door of Barky's Record Shop. So I, I go into this Barky's Record Shop, and it was a very, very neat, tidy store where everything had a bin that was placed and everything was in its proper place. And Barky had on this kind of smock. It, it, it almost looked like the kind of smock that they used to wear in barber shops, mm -hmm. the barbers would wear. And it had the name Barky embroidered over his, his chest. And um, and then there were two clerks, two women, who also wore the same kind of smocks. So this was the uniform. If you worked in Barky's record store, right. there was a uniform. Right. You had to wear this uniform. Mm -hmm. And I walk in the store, and this guy, Barky, who I didn't even know he was Barky. It's my first time in the store. He's the most effusive, friendly, loquacious guy you've ever seen in your life. He almost talks like a rapper would talk a little bit of there was a cadence and a, and a, almost a music to the way he talked and he's just and he was a little guy he kind of kind of reminds you of Spike Lee kind of built like Spike Lee and he kind of bounced as he talked and he was like hey he called everybody cuz he said hey cuz you know this is a heck of a coincidence you come in here today I was just thinking about you I went just this minute thinking about you and then he hollers over to one of his clerks in the same cloak, and he says, Betty, tell him, tell him, wasn't I just thinking about him? I just, I just told Betty, I said, I wonder where that boy is. And Betty nods, and she didn't have the smile. She was just kind of stiff and just sure like, thing, boss. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're right, boss. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And Betty was tough. Mm. Betty, if, if she watched you, the whole time, and I don't know if she watched everybody, but I mean, she was, her eyes were on you. Like, I don't think Betty was a clerk. I think she was a cop. I, yeah, she just she was knew that everything. Right, yes, right. exactly. And she, she just, the eyes of a tiger. And you just felt her eyes burning your back. And every once in a while, you'd pull a record out to look at it. And mind you, most of these are 45s, because that, that's what it was in those days. They yeah, were albums yeah. on the wall, but the majority of the product was 45s. And they had these things so meticulously categorized. Every artist had a section, and and she watched you to make sure you put the record back where it belonged. And if, God forbid, you put it in the wrong space, she would come up and grab it out your hand and say, it belongs here. <laughs> Just like a stern mother. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the... the, the, the the regimentation in this store was hysterical, and it was it was it was intimidating at first because this is my first 
the, the first day I was bold enough to go into the hood to explore this other world. And I run into this, you know, and I'm like, oh, shit, I got to watch my P's and Q's with this chick. <laughs> she'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. she'll call the Black Panthers and have me <laughs> have me assassinated or something. And, um, I mean, this all sounds so terrifically naive, but, you know, I was naive. I was a kid and, yeah. and into a situation that I had kind of dreamt about, but never realized before. At any rate, Barky and I did become friendly, and I did keep going back, and, you know, and even Betty would occasionally smile, <laughs> but that became my haunt, so it's like every Saturday when I was out of school, I'd take the bus downtown and spend whatever I could hustle up on new records, and in so doing was, you know, increasing my collection of James Brown and Ray Charles and all the artists that I had fallen in love with, and 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 of course I loved to sit there and talk shop with Bar, talk shop with Barky. Like, hey, how's this record selling compared to the last one? And oh. and what's what's the hottest new group that you know that everybody's you know I was I was just picking his brain for anything that I could learn about the music and. Um, and I guess he was probably, I'm sure he had other white kids. I, I was hardly the only white kid into this music that would shop there. I don't know that I ever saw any others, but I'm sure there were others, you know. And, um, you know, yeah, he's there but, to sell but records. Still, but still few and far between. Oh, no question. Yeah, yeah. No question. No, we, we, we were very, we were a very small cult, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, um, but, but I, I couldn't have been there, the only one. Yeah, but you gained this great education. You're, uh, you know, you're following your passion. Uh, you now have, a, you know, a source that will convey this information to you, and, you know, you get the product there. And I think that leads to your work in the, uh, the local Richmond black radio scene, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, I actually was downtown one day with a friend of mine who was a musician, and we were we we walked just happened to walk by the address of the black radio station. This was a Saturday afternoon, and it was a station that we were both avid fans of because they played the music we liked. Mm-hmm. So I said, this guy's name was Tom Hill, and I, and we went to school together. And I said, hey, let's go in there. And he's like, what for? What, what, you know, why do you go into a radio station? You have no business there. And I said, I, I just want to see what it's like, or, yeah. you know. Yeah. So sure enough, we knocked on the door, and a guy answered and let us in. And I made up some cock and bull story that we were looking for a studio to use to record my friend Tom's band or something and make a demo. I was, we had some excuse for being there. How old, so how we, old are you at this point, Alan? A uh, teenager, so I would have been, let's see, 63. I would have been about 15, 16 at the most. Okay, okay. And, um, you know, the young high school age. Mm. And, um, and at any rate, the fellow who was there, it turns out, was there alone. He was on the air and was the disc jockey for that particular shift. And because it was a Saturday, there was no office staff. He literally was the only human in the off in the in the in the radio station complex. But he, he let us in, and he said, "Come on back to the studio, and you know I gotta go on the air and introduce the records and do the news and stuff. But in between, we can chat." And I guess maybe he thought, "Well, I got these two suckers. Maybe they'll pay me a couple hundred bucks to come in one night and use the studio. Right. He can pocket the money, you know, whatever." But the long and short of it, to, to, to cut to the chase, um, the guy and I stayed in touch. He too was a music fan, 
name was Clayton Brown, mm. and he was a student at Virginia Union University, very bright guy, very middle-class guy. His dad was a dentist, and he was hardly, it was the opposite of the stereotype of what any white kid would have thought a black disc jockey would be like, because black disc jockeys would would talk in rhyme and talk in cadence and try to be, and use all kinds of hip slang, and this is a basically a square college student who just likes the music and is and this is his weekend gig. Right. He really has no aspirations to be a broadcaster. He ends up becoming an executive at Reynolds Aluminum, as right. a matter of right. fact. Right. But but this you know but nonetheless he we took to each other. And over a period of about a year, we became very close friends. So it got to the point where every Saturday afternoon, now I'm hanging at the radio station. And uh, to, to Barky's disappointment, now Clayton Brown at the radio station is giving me more records that I would have had to have bought at Barky's because the stations get extra copies of everything. Right, right. <laughs> so, so your, your so record collection is, just continues so, to grow. Yes, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly, exactly. And but but now much more importantly, working. it's all working for me, and it's just just stumble into this shit. But um, but more importantly, Clayton became a very dear friend, and and unfortunately he's passed away. But we remain close friends to the to the day he passed, and I'm still in touch with his sons and his his surviving wife. At any rate, um, I mean, close to the point where we were visiting each other's homes. My mother fell in love with him and just said he's the nicest guy I ever met, so on and so on and so on. And, and I might add, it was awfully unusual in our part of Richmond to have a black dinner guest. Yeah. That, I don't know if anybody noticed him coming in and out. We didn't make a display of it, but it was normal to us. But, um, you know, that's just how it was. At any rate, he and I became very, very close friends, as I eventually did with others who worked at the radio station. Suddenly, they had a vacancy for a part-time gig, and Clayton suggested to the program director that they let me do it, that I had been practicing and, you know, so on and so on, which had been true. And um, sure enough, they took a shot. And, um, you know, I'm forever grateful to this day because that was my entree. And and I, too, had no ambition to be a broadcaster all my life. Right. You know, so sitting in a glass room playing records. Well, it, it was cool at first because it's like, okay, this is what I do at home. I sit and play records. Now, now somebody's paying me for it. it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Right. And and cute little girls are calling up on the phone with requests yeah. and, and right. wanting to know my number. You know, right. so, right. like this is a win-win. This yeah. is this yeah. is really a great thing to do. But but uh, on a more serious note, the whole idea was I wanted to get close to the where the music came from. Mm-hmm. Because the station sponsored the majority of the soul music concerts that came through Richmond, and there were many. I mean, literally every weekend there was a major artist in town, either oh, playing a club or a ballroom, yeah. concert hall, or the arena. And I mean, you know, yeah, Richmond's Richmond, just big enough to pretty much yep. get everybody to come through town. And and it's and it's right on I ninety five, which is how you got from north to south, which was the the essence of the Chitlin circuit. That was the main drag of the Chitlin circuit was I ninety five, and Richmond's right on I ninety five, just a hundred miles south of D C. So every artist on tour had to come through there. So it was to their advantage to book gigs. Right. And um, 
you know, because they were probably going to North Carolina from New York or whatever, so stop and do a gig in Richmond. So it was a, a, a remarkably active scene. And artists like Otis Redding or Sam and Dave, they might play the Richmond market as many as three, four times a year, wow. which in today's touring oh, world sounds absurd. Yeah, that would never happen, but, yeah. But it, it's... You have to realize that in the soul music era, the economics weren't big. None of those guys were getting rich. No. And um, there was no tour support from the labels, so all of their employees, their musicians, their band boys, their road managers, if they had bodyguards, all of them had to get paid out of their performers' fees, not to mention travel expenses, pay for the bus, for the station wagon, for the gear. Um, nobody was getting rich, and, and tickets... You know, you play a dance hall that holds a thousand people, and tickets are two fifty or three dollars. Do the math. Yeah. It's it's not much. So they these artists would take any and every gig they could get, and they didn't worry about overexposure. They worried about not working. Yeah. So now, now the book's called "There Was a Time: James Brown, The Chitlin Circuit, and Me." And so let's let's talk about uh, the Chitlin Circuit. A lot of people throw out the term. Chitlin circuit, and in some ways it's been over-romanticized or thought as purely shotgun shack, but give our diggers a thorough understanding of what the Chitlin circuit was and, and why it existed. I, I think in, in, in broad terms, let's use the term very loosely. Yeah. The Chitlin circuit really was any venue that hosted black music for black audiences. Right. Could be considered Chitlin Circuit. Now, when you think of it, it, most people just assume it means, like you say, shotgun shacks down south or something or some juke joint. Yeah. Well, yes, it does mean that. And there were promoters who would, would, if they didn't have a venue in town, would create one. I mean, there were shows in tobacco warehouses. And and I remember a James Brown show we did in Richmond because the main venues were booked with other events that night, but it was the only night Brown was available, and the local promoter put him in an in aluminum uh, building on the on the on the site of the the state fairgrounds, which were in one of the suburbs of Richmond, and it was in in the winter months, and Richmond's not Minnesota, but it gets cold in the winter. And it was so cold in there because there was no heat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was it was like a livestock building on yeah. the fairgrounds right. where they, they did hog calling or something during the fair. <laughs> I don't know what the hell they did in there. And but it was literally an aluminum building. James Brown used his equipment truck with the lights strung up as his dressing room. Actually, got in the truck to change clothes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was parked like about a hundred feet from the stage. And it was a makeshift stage that somebody just put some wood up and built a stage. And literally, the band played their instrumental opening dance set with overcoats on. Because it was that cold. Because it was that cold. Right, right. Now, now, they, now right. That, that just, so that, that's the Chitlin Circuit. But the Chitlin Circuit is also the Apollo Theater. Yeah, there are which, these tears that, 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 right, that, that exactly. I, I got from your book. There's like... The around the world, which are like the, 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 I think those were the bigger theaters, right? And then you Correct. have these dance dance halls and clubs, and as we just discussed, you know, even you know, just uh, some warehouse that uh, might be a part of it. But the commonality is, you know, obviously, you know, uh, black music for black audiences, uh, especially in the South. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and, and oftentimes, artists that didn't have any significant, it wasn't that they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't work for white audiences. And in, in some of the theaters that they played, they, they would draw white fans. And from city to city, there, some cities had more white fans of black music than others. Some cities, they were fans of the music, but they were afraid to go to the shows because they'd be a minority in the audience and they thought they might get beat up or, you know, who knows what they thought. So there were there were artists that had appealed to the white audiences, but there were an awful lot of artists who were never played on pop radio. Yeah, they weren't promoted as, as, to white audiences. Or promoted to white audiences. So as a result, they by default played to completely black audiences. There was nowhere else that would hire them. And some of those became, you know, major, major stars. I mean, I, I think about people like Solomon Burke and, and Chuck Jackson, who may have had the occasional record that got played on pop radio, but their audiences were 99% black. So, of course, they got booked by promoters who did black shows, and that's where they worked. And the, 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 the economics weren't great, and the conditions were pretty, pretty lousy. Um, the work was hard, and when you'd get to, you know, the Apollo was considered the gold standard of the, of the, uh, of the so-called Chitlin circuit, to continue to use that term. And as you say, there were other theaters in major cities. There was the Howard Theater in Washington, the Uptown in Philly, the Regal in Chicago, Fox in Detroit, and the Royal in Baltimore. And this I think was that's the, the, around, the around the world, the, right? Exactly. That's what they called it. Because a lot of times they would put a package together and they would do a week in one theater and then move to the next theater. So you might work five or six straight weeks alternating amongst these theaters. And the performers would call it, well, I'm going around the world this month, (laughs) meaning going to that theater circuit. That was the slang. But um, but what people don't understand, simply because it just sounds so incredible, is that these theaters operated like a movie theater in the sense that they had four shows a day, five on weekends, which literally meant that they would open, the box office would open at like one o'clock in the afternoon, and the first show would start at two. Now, this is seven days a week, so mind you, you could be walking down 125th Street in Harlem to go grocery shopping or something and just happen to come by the Apollo on your way and realize that the two o'clock show is just starting and say to yourself, well, I had an hour and a half to kill. Let me put down two bucks and go in and see James Brown. And then after the show, you'd take your shopping bag and go up to the supermarket, finish your shopping and be back home by five for the evening news. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, it, picture these artists, these legendary artists who were creatively at the peaks of their careers and they're doing four oh, shows man. a day. Five shows a day. I can't even. Yes. You know, now, granted, they, they're on stage for 15, 20 minutes, uh, right? The, the, support, the support acts would do anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes, and the star would do 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there would be five or six acts on the bill. It wasn't just a one artist thing. And um, but, but when you really stop to really analyze, what does that mean? I mean, we, so first of all, you say, well, damn, okay, they're not long shows, but... But you have to do hair and makeup and have freshly pressed clothes for each of those shows. And if you're James Brown or Jackie Wilson, you come off the stage soaking with sweat. <laughs> yeah. And you go to some musty, roach-filled dressing room. 
and you take off the clothes, and you dry off, and you catch your breath, and then somebody says, okay, it's an hour until your next show, and you got to repress the suit or pick another suit off the rack to wear for the next show, and maybe you have time to go down the street and hang out in the record store that's a few doors up. Maybe you have time to go to Frank's Bar and Grill, which is three or four doors down from the theater, and have a steak dinner. It's a good restaurant. If if you're the type of guy, maybe you go out to left in the front of the theater and go down <laughs> to the Palm Cafe and, and hoist a few drinks to give you the fortitude to get through the rest of the show. Right, right. Or maybe you sit in the, maybe you sit amongst the roaches in the dressing room and you just take a nap. Yeah. You know, but and and in some cases, if you had time, some of the guys listen. They used there was a basketball court across the street from the back of the theater on 126th Street, and there were guys like Jerry Butler told me about how he and Curtis Mayfield used to go out and shoot hoops in between their gigs. They're, in between they're, they're, in between the, shows, the they come off right, stage right. and have an hour and a half to kill, <laughs> and they put in some sweats and some shorts and go across the street and shoot hoops. Nice. You know, but it, it was like. And, 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 of course, to anybody who wonders why there was such substance abuse amongst the entertainers and musicians mm-hmm. is like, you try sitting in a musty Rochefield Theater dressing room from 1 o'clock in the afternoon until midnight seven days a week and also do four or five shows that day. Right, right. So before That'll we... drive anybody to drink. I don't care how much you love performing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, that, that, it's grueling. It's definitely grueling. Uh, so you you learn the game from from being in Richmond in the in the early and mid '60s. Uh, you know, during a tremendous change in American society and in the music business. So can you give your perspective of that change in the latter 1960s from your vantage point? Sure, it was a, a very transitional time. By the time you got to the end of the '60s. Everything was changing. The whole culture was changing. I mean, the the, the civil rights um, uh, civil rights bill had begun to really have an effect on housing. That certain not not all and much too slowly, but certain neighborhoods were beginning to open up to mixed race tenants, so that all of a sudden, people that had been born and raised in the hood, if you had the middle class income and aspirations to move out, finally had a place to move. Right. And what that meant was that a lot of the role models and the economic base of communities like Harlem or Northwest mm-hmm. Washington, the upper echelon of that community moved out mm-hmm. because like any family, they wanted to live in a safer house that was in a better neighborhood, that was more pleasant to the eyes, that afforded their kids better schools and better police protection. I mean, who doesn't want to live in a better neighborhood? Of course. So as a result, those that could, uh, many, not all, but many vacated those neighborhoods, and what was left behind was the poverty and the drugs and crime that went with any poverty. I don't care if it's Harlem or if it's the hills of West Virginia. You have a bunch of poor people, you're going to have crime and substance abuse. Yeah, it's it, strictly it, economic. Just, right. it goes, it, exactly, it goes together. Mm-hmm. Um, so those neighborhoods really, really were, were, were terribly That's affected. Right. Mm-hmm by that progress, and that also, by nature, affected the entertainment business that had thrived there. As some of the clubs ended up going out of business, uh, the theaters didn't draw the crowds they used to draw, and Apollo was starting to fall on hard times, for example. So all of this was beginning to happen uh, 
And 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 mind you too, there were the disturbances in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination in the spring of '68. You had um, very serious. I hate the word that they call them riots for the yeah. sake of history. That's what they're always referred to. The civil disturbances in those cities, which also burned out a lot of places and um, you know physically destroyed. Uh, businesses and and things that that the, the residents depended on, and um, you know it, it it was a very bleak forecast for those neighborhoods, that many of which are only now becoming to really really coming back to thriving um, um, areas, and um, that affected the music business. Now at the same time, there were new arenas and auditoriums being built throughout the country. As sports franchises increased and the, 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 all the professional sports leagues were expanding and adding teams to cities that didn't previously have teams. I mean, if you'll remember in the 50s, there wasn't a baseball team west of of, of St. Louis. Right, right. Not until you know, the Dodgers but, uh, came to Los yeah, Angeles in 1950s. Exactly, yeah. exactly. When I was a kid, there were 16 professional baseball teams. Now there's twice that. Yeah. And they're all over the country, south, east, west, north, you name it. But back then, everything was, was, was east east of the Mississippi. And so all of those cities were building new venues. There was just a rash of new auditoriums and arenas being built in the late 60s, early 70s. And, of course, these venues had 365 days a year they wanted to rent out to some kind of an event. So it was mm-hmm. virgin territory for promoters of rock and roll shows as, as well as any kind of event. And once these artists, you could put a, a package together of nine or ten of the hottest artists on the on the charts, and put that show in an arena where you could sell ten or twelve thousand tickets. The idea of yeah, now you're beginning to talk. You're about beginning some money. to talk about some money, and you're also beginning to talk about a more civil lifestyle because now instead of doing four or five shows a night. For a thousand people per show, you can do in Madison Square Garden the equivalent of three days at the Apollo. Right, Reach the right. same audience with one show. So it's right. a no-brainer. It's right. more money. It's less work. The conditions are better. Mm-hmm. The dressing rooms are clean. The promoters tend to be honest because most of those were city-run buildings who would screen promoters so that they didn't let hustlers buy dates that they didn't have a, the, the means to which to properly promote a show and pay the artist. So the business became, became more reliable, more profitable, and less hard work. So it, it was absolutely a no-brainer that the Chitlin Circuit was going to dwindle into something that really only only persisted for those artists who were struggling to reach the level where they could play the bigger buildings and and get the notoriety and the box office appeal to really sell tickets so you know if if you right. were if you were working your way up and you had your first hit record and you were somebody like Eddie Floyd or Arthur Conley then maybe you still played some of these chitlin circuit joints down south but once you had that second or third hit, you were on one of those packages that played the arenas, and life was better. And and you right, know it, right. it it you know we we can romanticize what that scene was about because the pre the the the, the early '60s soul music scene was so rich in culture 
because everybody was crammed together in these hot, sweaty environments. But it also meant that the acts hung out together and musicians got to know each other and it became a network. When you start, when you played the Apollo and had four shows a day, then it was only natural that there was a social world that would develop amongst the artists. So you, you might find Jerry Butler and Chuck Jackson and Solomon Burke shooting baskets outside, or you might find them in the basement shooting craps, but they were, they got to know each other. And and what? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and they'd be trading uh, secrets. They would do like that. that and they were super well. competitive on stage, but once they were off stage, mm-hmm. they'd give each other tips. And, and, and more yeah. importantly, you look at, you look at Otis Redding's I've Been Loving You Too Long, arguably his best ballad. It was co-written yeah. by Otis and Jerry Butler. Why? Because they were on a show together in Buffalo, New York, hanging out backstage. It would have never happened otherwise. And, and so, right, so right. this was, and not, not to mention musicians, say the guy in Wilson Pickett's band is tired of Wilson Pickett and wants a gig with James Brown, and he gets to know James Brown's band leader, and they swap numbers. So there was this, this whole ability to network, and it went beyond the theaters because the economics of that business was such that a lot of the, only the, only the stars could stay in hotels if you were playing the Apollo because you weren't making enough money to really put the whole group in a hotel. So a lot of times now they were boarding, boarding houses, houses you'd have to stay in. And they, these yeah, were the yeah. old kind of boarding houses where somebody might own a brownstone uh, on, you know, on 128th street or something and would let it be known that she would rent out rooms. And sometimes you would have two guys in the band who would double up and share the rent because they wanted to have money to take home at the end of the week. Um, so, so you'd right, have a right. boarding house that might have the comedian who was appearing at the Apollo or a couple of jazz musicians who were playing around the corner at the Palm Cafe or at Small's Paradise. And you would have all these entertainment people living in, and, 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 and the, the matron of the, of the boarding house would usually provide breakfast. That would be the only meal because those guys were out working the rest of the day. Yeah. But, you know, you'd, you'd have all these people sitting around the breakfast table and you Swapping stories, swapping job opportunities. Hey, you know that club in Boston? They're looking for an MC, you know, or they're looking for a. I heard Thelonious Monk's looking for a sax player. You know that kind of shit, and and a lot of that disappeared as the business became more corporatized and so on. Now, you can you know say that that's a fair trade because obviously the benefits outweigh the negatives. But but it, it was yeah yeah uh, like everything a double edged right. sword exactly uh, and until un, until uh, you know the uh, the entire operation is able to enjoy the fruits of that uh, of that yeah. labor so all right all right well now uh, and thanks very much that was, that was very very educational on the Chitlin circuit and the changes that occurred throughout the 1960s to it I really appreciate that so so let's get into talking about the hardest working man mm-hmm. in show business. Um, tell us about meeting Mr. Brown for the first time, because I think it really revealed something about his character. He he wasn't bored uh, with some low-level radio schmuck as yourself, but but he actually made you feel important, even if he wasn't entirely sincere. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was then an, an apprentice disc jockey at the radio station in Virginia, 
and had really just begun to work on the air as a air personality. So I was really new at this. But James Brown was coming to town. Green. It was very green. And and James Brown was coming to town, and I badgered the program director to let me go to his hotel to interview him, to do a, a promotional interview that I would take the tape back to the station and we'd play it to hype the gig that night and so on. And um, he called Brown, and Brown said, yes, yeah, send, send the kid over, whatever. And, you know, he was... He was used to being interviewed, no doubt. That probably happened in every town. Somebody from a radio station grabbed a few minutes with him backstage or something. But, uh, you know, I slept this tape recorder over to the hotel, went up, knocked on the door of his suite, and a very attractive, sexy woman um, answered the door. And she looked at me a little strange. She was, you know, probably expected a a black man because this was a black radio station. That's what they were used to. Brown, Brown, just to 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 put this in context, his his current record at the time was Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, which was in the midst of becoming his biggest pop success. His biggest. He'd had a few others on pop radio, but this was his first real, real smash hit that crossed the board to pop radio, and he was getting attention that he had never gotten before. Dick Clark was calling to get him on American Bandstand and uh, a, a weekly series called Shindig, which was a pop music series for a few years in the 60s, was booking him for the first time. And so he was getting this this uh, visibility that was that was new and obviously looking at it as a means to increase his performance fees and so on. So he, this was a big moment for him. It was a turning point for his career. So I show up, and, and eventually the lady escorts me into the bedroom of this hotel suite. And dude's still in bed. He's fully dressed. Yeah, he's got a robe on. He's got pajamas and a robe. But he's laying back, propped against a king-size bed, laying back, propped against a ton of pillows, and all I saw was hair. Now, mind you, this is this is the James Brown of the '60s, where he had that, that oh yeah, absurd pompadour, pompadour yeah. processed hair, yeah. and it's all over the pillows. And I'm like, oh my god, somewhere in there is a face. Um, I mean, it was it was stunning. I, I'd never quite seen anything like that. And the, and the bed faced a big window, and there was sunlight coming into the window. So it was it was almost as if he was on a movie set and he was being lit because the sun was right on him and and it was like yeah. and, and you know he 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 wasn't a light-skinned fellow and and the sun was just just bouncing off the rich color in his face and surrounded by this 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 huge halo of hair i mean it was like it's a vision that I will go to my grave seeing as vividly as if it was today. It, it, it was just stunning. And, um, and he was like, wide awake. Hey, kid. So Tom Mitchell tells me you're the new kid. Welcome. And he goes into this whole thing about, you know, we start talking shop. We haven't even begun the interview. The tape's not on yet. And, um, you know, he's he's telling me about what Tom Mitchell was the program director of the radio station, who Brown had known for years. And um, anyway, he, he just he keeps pumping my head full of, well, what's your air shift? What time are you on the air? And, oh, man, that's the prime time. 
there's many. Everybody's going to be listening to you. You 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 going to be big. You you can. I got to have your number. I got to stay in touch with you. I know you're going places. Yeah, that's and amazing. He's, yeah, he's just going <laughs> off, and I'm like, holy shit. I got to interview this guy. <laughs> now I'm shaking. I'm like, nobody's ever told me anything like this, but this is my idol saying this. And it was just so disarming. Right. And, um, right. you know, so we, we started talking about it and, and I'm just, all I want to do is ask him about this record because this amazing record that sounds like nothing else anybody's ever heard before. And it's this huge success. So I want to congratulate him on that. And he starts listing all the pop stations across the country that had added the record. He says, well, you know, KOMA in Oklahoma City added it. They never play black music. And the station in North Dakota added it. They ain't even got black people in North Dakota. And I mean, he's just doing this whole <laughs> promo hype. And I'm like, dude, you're preaching to the choir. You don't have to convince me. I get it. I get it. I get it. Then yeah. somehow we yeah. started talking about the Motortown Review which was then only in its second or third year as a touring entity. I mean, the, the idea that Motown would put all their star acts on one show and put it on a bus and take it around the country, um, much the same way the James Brown review traveled, except that James Brown, it was one star, but Motown, it was, you know, the miracles, the Marvel, it's Marvin Gaye, Marvel, yeah, so yeah, on. Yeah. Barry Gordy exactly. Staple, right. We, we started talking about that, and we started talking about the fact that, uh, well, you know, son, Barry Gordy made one mistake. He should have had all black promoters, because black radio is going to hold that against him. He had to have black uh -huh. promoters, but he's trying to cross over and get that white. See, see, the way to cross over is be yourself. There ain't no other record sounds like my record. I'm being myself, and it's working at pop radio. Took a long time. But it's there for the right reason. Well, maybe two different ways to do that. Uh, you know, let's face it, the Motown was extremely successful. Of course, but he was jealous of that. So this was his way of justifying it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. More character. Yes. Reviews. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I I began to see that side of him. But the long and short of it is he made me feel like I was going to be the next at Clark in six months. And just, I, I just walked out of there. And, and we, more importantly, you, yeah, you must, you must have been on cloud. We talked for hours. I lost track of the time. I never did get back to the radio station in time to get the thing on the air. <laughs> the, the, the actual interview never got on the air until the next day because, and the idea was to hype the gig, but, yeah, so much for exactly. But, right, but I'm, right, I'm yeah. just, I can't yeah. leave because he's still talking to me. Then I remember he got up, he said, let's go to the living room, it's news time. And he put on the NBC Nightly News, Huntley Brinkley, if you remember, you're not old enough to know, but they were the predecessors, yeah. they were yeah, yeah, the hosts yeah. of the, you know, back when there were only three TV stations in town. Yeah. And everybody yeah. watched the 530 News because that was... There was no CNN. If you wanted to know the news, you had to put on Huntley Brinkley or Walter Cronkite. He put on Huntley Brinkley and sat and watched the news together. And I'm like, you know, this is soul brother number one, but he's watching Huntley Brinkley just like my dad does at home. And, I'm, I'm, you know, he's starting to become a real person to me now because there's, you know, I don't know what I thought. 
Yeah, is, uh, your parents probably did something yeah. like that. To, yeah, uh, but, but you know, when, yeah. when you yeah. listen to Live at the Apollo and you're groomed on this music and you become infatuated with the emotions and the whole milieu of where the music comes from, the last thing you think about is what must he be doing at 5.30 in the afternoon or what does he watch on TV? You don't, right. you don't have those. There's no reason. Right. It's no, nowhere no, no, on your no. radar screen. So the idea that I'm sitting on a couch... This is going from mythology exactly. to reality. And the, the idea that I'm sitting on a couch next to James Brown watching the nightly news was like, like, you know, this is this is a movie. This is this is bizarre. And we kept yeah. talking. He says, "Well, son, I got to get up. I got to get dressed. Got to get rest. Got to do a sound check. Got some new guys in the band. Got to break them in before we open the doors. So I'm have to get going. But come back and see me backstage after the show." And then I looked at him and I said, I know this is a horrible question, Mr. Bram, but would you let me, would you allow me to record the show? <laughs> and he hesitated and he said, well, you know, my record company be mad. I said, I promise I would never play it on the radio. This is just for me. And he hemmed and hawed and he says, you know what? The way we're doing the show now is so different and so new. I think you need to have it. I think you need to have it. Yeah, bring your recorder. I'll, 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 I'll tell my stage manager it's okay. And this is one of three times that he actually allowed me when I was a kid to bring a tape recorder, put it on the stage, stick up a mic in front of the speakers, and, and record what we would call bootlegs of three sixties James Brown shows that the tapes of which I have to this day. Um, it was just, and it, and it was like, and, and the third time he started to say no. And then he says, no, you know what? We've changed the way we play. I feel good. You need to hear the new version. Yeah. And, and bring your tape, bring your tape. And, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, this really is my godfather now. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe yeah. this. So, of course, that, that yeah. turned into kind of an all-access pass. And from that point on, any time his show, and, and mind you, his show was on the road 51 weeks out of the year. They didn't, you know, we didn't use the word. Hardest working man in show business. No, they weren't kidding. Exactly. But we, we didn't use the word tour back then because you worked. It was a job. No, it was just it you was, was constant. Exactly. Yeah, it, was a job. It, it, was, it was your it was your day job. It was where you went every day. Just happened to be in different cities, different venues. Well, and and that's certainly the way he took it and kept it uh, throughout uh, his entire, entire career. career. Yep. And to, 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 to the day yeah. he died, he would refer to his gigs as jobs. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Yeah. 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 Um. So four years later from 65 in 1969 you actually go to work for the james brown productions team headquartered in cincinnati but uh you sort of had a job and you sort of didn't yeah yeah it was um i was actually going to school going to college in pittsburgh against my again my parents had moved and the radio station in virginia was sold changed format so i had no more reason to stay there so i moved back up and moved up to pittsburgh and joined my parents and um and got into college and was studying journalism in school while I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, I don't know why journalism, I guess. I, I, I suppose if it hadn't been music, I might have been 
followed that as a career because um, I did like to write, and I was curious by nature. So I guess that that would make a reporter. But at any rate, yeah. Um, James Brown had a date booked at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh coming up, which I, I knew I knew it was booked. I seen an ad, but I got a call from one of his guys. By then, I I was I knew his agents and you know the whole crew, new fellows in the band, and you know I had, I had become really a backstage mascot yeah. whenever he was within a hundred miles. I'd hang out at the James Brown shows, so I knew all these guys. I got a call from Buddy Nolan, who was his tour director at the time. And he said, Mr. Brown's got this show at the arena, and he's got some beef with the local black radio station. We need somebody to babysit the promotion. Um, would you be interested? And, again, I didn't hesitate. I said, are you kidding? You think? Do I have to, can I pay you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I asked him, what is that about? He says, well, you, you got to help us scale the ticket prices so we know we're in, in sync with the local community and competitive with other shows that come through Pittsburgh. We're going to send you 100 posters that you're going to take around to barbershops and tack on poles and telephone poles around town where people congregate. And you're going to have to buy the radio ads at the radio stations and the newspaper ads and make sure that they babysit them to make sure that they run properly and they sound right and that they're in the right time slots and, you know, just oversee the promote every aspect of the promotion. And I said, okay, cool. And I had a little bit of experience doing that in Richmond because um, before I left Richmond, as I got more successful in the radio, myself and a couple of other uh, the air personalities there had begun promoting some club shows. Um, nothing of a big nature, but we did like Jerry Butler in a club and Sam and Dave and a couple of artists on that level in in Richmond nightclubs. So we, you know, I knew that I knew the basics of of what what to do, and um, James trusted me to do it, and. Um, you know, the show sold out. We had like 12,000 people in the Civic Arena. And um, he asked me how we managed to get it sold out because the last time they played Pittsburgh, it hadn't been that successful. And, um, you know, I showed him the advertisements and showed him what I'd done. And he said, can you do this in every town? And of course, I lied and said yes. And um, next thing you know, I'm off to Cincinnati. Fake it yeah, until you exactly. make it. Exactly. He says, well, these press releases you wrote that you put in the newspapers, the newspapers never give me that kind of coverage. How in the world did you pull that off? And I said, it's, it's not that hard, Mr. Brown. These newspaper editors don't know nothing about pop music. They're usually theater guys. They want it. They're, they've been assigned to run the theatrical section of the daily papers because they know about movies and stage plays. They don't give a shit about this. Yeah. But guess what? They got space on the page that they have to fill up. So if you give them a well-written press release, with yeah, you, you do, do the, the work, work for them. For them. Uh, they'll, 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 they'll open it up. Some well, space they'll open it, it up. Right. They have space to fill. They've got column yeah. inches available. And if you can do that for them, you just made their life easier. It's just got to be well-written, and right. they've got to know that the show is trustworthy and legit. You know, just can't be some hustler promoter hyping some bullshit. You got to come correct. But, and he's like, well, nobody's ever done that for me before, son. I know you're in school, but you ready to go to work? And I'm like, are you kidding? So, next thing you know, I'm off in my car. My friends at school give me a going away party because I'm going off to work for James Brown. 
So I drive yeah. to Cincinnati and I start working in the office there. And, um, you know, I, I knew a couple of the guys who worked there, so they kind of groomed me and taught me the ins and outs and the personalities in the company and who to look out for, who's a backstabber and who's not, because the James Brown world, um, when you have somebody who's that demanding a boss and a perfectionist, you tend to attract employees that become very competitive for his attention. And that leads to certain personalities turning into backstabbers. And they'll, you know, there was there's a company like that always has a couple guys who will throw you under the bus. Um, but yeah. I got the heads up as to who was and who wasn't, and so on. So it was cool. And I started cold calling newspapers in all the cities where the show was booked to play, and sending press releases and doing basically what I had done in Pittsburgh. And that was even surprised myself at how much success I had getting stories planted which was good, but Brown was on the road. He, he came in the office for a couple of days when I first got there, and then he went off to the West Coast. He had a string of about a month of shows out West, and I'm left behind in the office in Cincinnati. And payday comes. And the way, the, the way it right. worked is they would, the office staff was paid from the income on the road. The road manager would, on mm -hmm. Mondays of every week, Western Union a bunch of money to the production manager in Cincinnati who would then who would then divvy it up into paycheck you know pay envelopes it actually wasn't a check it was cash and and into pay envelopes that they would distribute to all the people who worked in the office and it was you know six or seven of us I guess but there was no envelope for me and the the production manager who was in charge of dispensing these 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 pays was a guy named Bud Hopgood, rest his soul, who actually worked for King Records, but was on loan to James Brown Productions and had become his production manager. This is the guy who did all the dirty work in the studio. He would, he would, uh, you know, he would, he would mix the records after the sessions, send the mixes to James for his approval. He would overlook the mastering and the label copy, you know, all the administrative stuff and register the copyrights of all the new songs and, you know, that kind of busy work that went with the, with the, all the James Brown production record releases. Yeah. And um, yeah. mm -hmm. at any rate, that was his position. And, um, and he just said, well, you're, you're new and, you know, probably fell through the cracks. So you'll, they'll catch you up next week. I'm like, okay. Next week comes next Monday, still no envelope. I'm like, okay, this is not good. Now, I tried to call Brown. I didn't know who else to call I turned, because I didn't know the road manager very well. Um, I tried to call Brown, and I couldn't get through. He was in a hotel somewhere in L.A., but under a pseudonym, which is typical for celebrities, and I didn't know what the pseudonym was, so I couldn't get him on the phone. So I hang in there one more week. And finally, Bud Hobgood says, well, there's nothing here for you. I don't know what that means, but." And I said, well, Mr. Hobgood, I've worked three weeks. And I'm trying to respect his position because he obviously is the boss in this little group of people. And, mm -hmm. um, and I might add that James hadn't warned him I was coming. He didn't, when I first showed up in Cincinnati, he didn't even oh, know. Really? Yeah, uh, who are you? You know. <laughs> And um, at, at any right. rate, he said, I said, well, you know, I'm not accustomed to working for free. This is not a good precedent, much less um, 
not accustomed to sleeping in my car, which is what's going to happen when I get thrown out of this uh, this hotel room in a minute. Um, that you know, I'm looking for apartments, but I can't even pay the hotel bill for where I'm staying. And this is a really bad situation. So, um, you know, I don't know what to do. And he says, "Well, you do what you got to do." And he turned his back. So obviously, he didn't give a shit. And I said, "Okay, I'm on my own here. So what do I do?" Well, I couldn't go back to Pittsburgh because they thrown me this going away party. So I was going to go back there. And, that's know. A, yeah, that's tail between right. the legs stuff. So right. I, I did go back to Pittsburgh. I left my car at my parents' house and took the train to New York. And and I knew somebody who was working for Cool in the Gang, who had just come out with their first album. And um, and I got a gig working there. So I actually was booking gigs for Cool in the Gang for about. A month, and that's a whole other story that's in the book, and encourage people to read that part because it's 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 pretty funny. But yes, at any rate, to, to keep on the James Brown tick, um, I guess Brown figured out like, well, what happened to Leeds? You know, did he quit on me or what? Yeah. What happened? And it, I later learned through Bob Patton, who was one of my allies in the office, that when Brown hired me, he had talked to Hal Neely, who was the president of King Records. And said, I have a publicist who's coming here. He's good, and he could probably help you with your product, too, if you get to know him. Um, but I need you to pay him through the label as opposed to off the road. And meanwhile, Hal Neely is like, I don't know this kid. And James is just coming to me telling me to pay some kid I've never even met. You know, fuck that. So he forgot all about it. Yeah, that's not going to So happen. Brown thinks <laughs> Hal Neely's paying me. Once Hal Neely realized I was there working, he figured Brown was paying me. Nobody was going to take responsibility for it, and I just fell between the cracks. Well, once that was sorted out, um, Bob Patton lobbied for me to James Brown, and he said, look, Mr. Leeds just didn't have a choice. He didn't want to go. He just didn't know who to call. He tried to call you. He was you know, caught between the rock and a hard place, and Bud, Bud Hobgood kind of threw him under the bus. And so on. And by then, Bob needed an assistant because somebody else had left the company and he needed somebody to help him with booking the arenas and and actually road managing the, the, the show itself way beyond just the publicity. And James said, well, you tell Mr. Leeds, I'll be in Rochester tonight. And if he's there before the show ends, he's got a job. So. So you got to yeah, get to But Rochester. I'm in New York, so I threw my shit together, went yeah. to Port Authority, got on a Greyhound, and went to went to Rochester. And I got there just as the show was ending, and he welcomed me back. And he said, I'll give you an advance on your first week's pay so you know everything's kosher. And that's really remarkable because this is a guy who wouldn't go pay if he didn't have to. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't the mom. first one who right. didn't get paid. As you've said many times, right, and, right, right. And so, so I went from sleeping on a desk in the office because I had been locked out of my hotel room in New York, and I was literally sleeping on a desk in Cooling the Gang's manager's office for a week, um, to a Greyhound bus to Rochester, and I left Rochester with James on his private jet to Cincinnati, where I had a hotel suite and a paycheck, and then it was a. Uh, it was a remarkable 24-hour transition. As rags to riches. Rags to riches, Literally a 24-hour rags to riches. And, of course, I later found out right. that's part of the initiation, James Brown. He, he, everybody gets fired at least once just to see how you'll handle it. Oh. 
Now, you bring up how how Mr. Brown was perhaps one of the most competitive individuals uh, you've ever met, uh, and that his uh, contemporaries like Otis Redding and Jerry Butler or even comedian Flip Wilson were both in awe and infuriated or confounded uh, yeah. by him. Um, you know, that's just, I, I mean, he, he really was just super competitive and we kind of touched on it a little bit in in your first interview with him where he was trying to downplay what Barry Gordy was exactly. doing uh so I, I, he just he I, was he like that all the pretty time pretty much pretty much he was um it, 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 it always used to tickle me because I thought it was so beneath him in the sense that Oh, he can blow anybody exactly. off the stage. I, I'm not sure why he has exactly. to do that. I mean, exactly. It's... But but I think he just he realized that that popular music, be it black, white, whatever, country music, whatever, the popular music yeah. had a built-in what George Clinton calls a built-in obsolescence factor. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah. that that in order to remain current and remain vital. You had to reinvent yourself because at some yeah. point, whatever you're doing is going to become common and passe. Passe, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. for, for probably for that reason alone, he felt threatened by anybody who was hot because it's like, okay, this Marvin Gaye's getting really hot and he's a good-looking guy. The girls like him. If he continues... Definitely somebody he's, to be worried he's coming about. Coming after I get me, that. and it could be this week Marvin Gaye or Otis Redding or whoever was hot. Is he? He just yeah. and and. Well, hell, the press even meant, said you know Otis is the the second coming sure. of James Brown. So they they were absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And had he lived, I mean, with Zaka the Bay as his last record, showing a a growth oh, in his oh my in, God. the crossed yeah. over like that. Yeah, oh, so he was God. going places. Yeah, now, yeah, he was going to do things that that even James was never able to do until I think coming to America in like the 1980s when when you know he finally was completely uh, and utterly recognized. Uh, by right. white culture, as uh, you know, such a such such the man he was. But Otis was about ready to do it here with uh, with Doc of the Bay in uh, in sixty. Uh, yeah, and and, and, so, uh, that's yeah, and, and you got to figure that in Otis's case, that wasn't an anomaly that that, that he was going to continue to grow uh, as a no. writer oh, and no, so he on. Was gonna, yeah. Now oh, yeah. having yeah yeah, and and I can I can understand that with him and or maybe Jerry Beller, but like comedian Flip Wilson, I mean, there's no. You know, it's it's a totally different apples and oranges here, but but yet he is still like just trying to minimize him, uh, you know, for for his own ego in some way. Yeah, I, I think so. But if if you'll allow me, let me rewind to Otis for just another second, and I'm going to put on my James yeah, Brown publicist please. hat and just point out a couple of things. <laughs> the, the the thing about Otis Redding was, and 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 I think that this was the difference, and and you, you're. You're probably quite right that his crossover ability um, might have exceeded Brown's. Now, that was partially because Brown insisted on remaining loyal to his black audience, and at a time where, where yeah, where, Otis was going after yeah, white well, audiences. well, yeah. I mean, James welcomed white audiences, but it didn't stop him from making records like "Say It Loud," "I'm Black," and "I'm Proud." And and yeah. other controversial yeah. records that were that were very soul power and things like that, 
uh, Otis probably wasn't going to do things like that. I think he was a little more conservative. I think he was a little more less political. Now, who knows what he would have evolved into? I mean, he was a young guy when he died. But the other thing that's a huge factor in comparing the two is that Otis wasn't the musician James was. He wasn't the band leader. He took very little. He had the benefit of the Stax Volt studio band, which was amazing. Yeah, he's got Booker, Booker exactly, T. And the Marquee and G's, Horns right. and the Memphis Horns. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the so his, his, his records yeah, are yeah. musically brilliant. But when Otis was on the road with his own band, and I saw them countless times, the bands were always raggedy. The horn sections would be out of tune. They weren't well rehearsed. And you just saw the difference in that Otis was like, Otis was so confident of his ability to sing and work a stage that he didn't really put much time into into everything else around him. And that was the difference. Is, is Otis, don't misunderstand me, Otis, or, or is Mr. Otis Brown was an was, amazing performer yeah, he, and he could rock a house. But, but yeah. James Brown's... The detail-oriented yeah. that Mr. Yeah. Brown was, uh, it just far exceeded anything that Otis would ever bring to the table. Exactly, and some of that had to that, do with uh, James Brown sense. was just more innovative, as a, not, a, not as a singer, as a musician. Even though he couldn't play instruments, he knew what to tell guys to play. And a lot of the music that those yeah, musicians in his band crazy. came up with, yeah. um, he inspired. I mean, they contributed parts. Don't misunderstand me. It was a group effort. But but Brown was the captain yeah. of that ship. And whereas Otis, he never recorded with his own musicians. It was always with the Stax Volt guy. And I get it. it why not? Who's going to do better? But for Deep Soul Music, they, they were the gold standard. But... Um, but yeah, you know, you, yeah. listen to the to the Otis Redding live at the Whiskey A Go Go um, album, and uh, you know, oh, and yeah. and oh, yeah. just no listen. Yeah. And he's he's great, yeah. but listen to the band; it's horrible. Yeah, horrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly compared to the Famous Flames uh, there, and that and that leads me to the next question because I, I believe you were in the company. Uh, when Mr. Brown made perhaps the biggest musical change by replacing the Flames with what ends up becoming the JBs, yes. right? Well, well, act- actually, with all due respect, the Flames was never the name of the band. The Flames was the name of the original five guys that were a vocal group. Bobby Bird, Johnny Terry, oh, yes. and so on, James Brown oh, and the okay. Famous Flames referred to the vocal group, at which time they had a guitar player who was considered a flame, and Bobby would play piano, and James would even play drums and sometimes sing from behind the drums. This is way in the early days. But that was the Famous Flames. Now, as the, as the years evolved, the Famous Flames were the guys who stood up next to him and danced and occasionally sang background, Bobby Bird, Baby Lloyd, and Bobby Bennett. You see the Tammy show or the, Ed's, the clips of the Ed Sullivan show. And the Famous Flames were the guys who sang and danced, did not play instruments. They disbanded in 1968, and James became a solo act. But it was always the James Brown Band or James Brown Orchestra, and, it, and it's a very, very, very common misconception in many books. Even some of some of James's own writings have referred to the band as the Flames, when in fact it never was. But that, that's I'm being petty. Uh, okay. But um, yeah. It, no, but that's good. That's how we yeah, want the well, details. That's, that's about so as good. petty details you can get. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, 
Now, the, 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 the James Brown Orchestra was the it was the the apex of that music. I mean, it just had amazing musicians um, and creative musicians who were proud to be part of that thing. And he was a perfectionist, rehearsing to death, driving Stone crazy. Um, and that eventually led to the point where the band threatened to quit if they didn't get certain benefits like more off days and uh, better travel conditions and, you know, so on and so on. They had a list of grievances. Yeah, because unlike Otis, who brought his band on the plane with him, uh, only James flew in. The right. He would, he would, well, the Learjet was just a five-seater, and he would cherry-pick people to fly with him occasionally. If it, Sometimes the band leader would fly with him so they could talk about arrangements. Um, sometimes Bobby Bird would fly with him just so they could talk about old times. It was whoever he felt like being bothered with that night. Or if I was on the road, I would fly with him, or Bob Patton, the other booking agent who handled the shows with me, would fly with him if he was on the road. But certainly not. I mean, it was a five-seater. It was a small private jet. And and you're right, Otis, in 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 in, in his spirit, he even said to me, I ain't getting a little plane like that, James Brown. Disrespect his musicians, throwing them on a bus. I'm going to take them with me, you know. And we know the sad sad conclusion to that but yeah unfortunately um, yeah yeah so the best of intentions but um no it, it was uh, you know james brown's world was one of uh, do as i say not as i do and he was a, a boss in the old-fashioned dictatorial sense but it was a place it was it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing because every every tour and i've done countless tours with other artists through the years of my freelancing and Every tour, at some point, somebody says, wow, this is just like having a family out here. We're a family on the road. And it's it's always bullshit because it's we're a bunch of people making a living who happen to be in the same place at the same time for a month. That's what we are. You want to call that a family? Fine. But right. guess what? When this tour ends, you're going to lose my number. I'm going to lose yours. And we may never see each other again in life. Um, <clears throat> you know. Yeah, it's a very ephemeral Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Well put. <laughs> Well put. But you do go into some great detail in the book that speaks volumes on how Mr. Brown operated as a benevolent, mostly dictator. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was my point is is that if there was a tour I was part of that really has remained a family, it would be the people that worked for James Brown. Now, obviously, not everybody. There were tons of people who came and went that, you know, were long forgotten for a variety of reasons. But I mean, all of us who were out there. With him, in, in my case, Jesus, do the math, 50 years ago, um, you know, and for others as much as 40 years or so on, we've remained in touch. And, and I mean, you have people like his his background singer, Martha High, and and uh, obviously Maceo Parker and Pee Wee Ellis and Fred Wesley, who came out of his bands, and, and as well as other musicians that played with him through the years that, that aren't as well known by name. And we're all still in touch. We're Facebook friends. We go support each other's gigs. Um, so you really yeah, are family. Yeah, that, that, that was my point, is that this is a case where, where, where a lot of us really really are still in touch. And, um, I mean, it, it was it was a horrible reason, but, the, you know, Bobby Bird and James Brown passed within a year or so of each other. And those funerals, yeah. as, as sad as the occasions were, were huge reunions for all of us. And, I mean, we saw people that we'd been on the road for. It was like, it was like a family reunion. 
It was crazy. Yeah. And 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 um, and and I'll tell you what else was like that. The opening of the biopic, the James Brown biopic, um, that uh, Chadwick Boseman starred in, Get, Get on, on Up, up. Yeah. and. Um, um, yeah. The premiere, the premiere of that, at the, which was at the Apollo in New York, produced by yeah, Mick pre- Jagger. Yeah. Produced yeah. by Mick Jagger. Um, that was like a reunion because there were a whole bunch of us there. Who got his know? ass showed up at the TV yep. show? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> love oh, Nick. No, Don't get me wrong. Love Nick. Uh, yeah, love his, history's done him well, and and, and we're a yeah, worthy they, cause uh, uh, for they, him to they, do that. They survived it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. When I, I just, I, I, I saw the Stones last year, and you know, you can't help but go. Hmm, there's some James Brown up yeah. there, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So, so first, you guys move headquarters to Nashville, and I, I it, it, you didn't like that, and then you eventually have to follow Mr. Brown to Augusta, which it seems you really. Well, did. it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, Augusta has 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 become a lovely town, and I have friends there, and uh, James Brown's da- daughter still lives there, and has has done very well for herself in that community, and um, and I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity I had to live there for a better part of a year, but when he first announced it, I was just devastated because what 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 had happened was for for years his office had been in Cincinnati because it was part of his deal with King Records. King Records had been had been founded and always was based in Cincinnati, where the owner was from. And um James left the label and signed with Polydor Records, whose domestic office is a European owned company, but the yeah, German, German company, German but the yeah. but the At domestic the I think the beginnings of BMG. If I, I think that. you're right. Um, the domestic offices for Polydor were in New York, and just like with King, his new deal with Polydor gave him office space within their complex. So I just assumed we're we're all, oh, you yeah, thought you're going baby, to New York. And, and I'm originally from New York, and I'm like, yeah, we're going home. Hello, yeah. this is perfect, perfect, perfect. And, um, you know, New York was still affordable. It was 1971, so the idea of living in the city was still within my reach. And, um, you know, it's like, this is perfect. Like, this is perfect. I can get good bagels again. <laughs> you know, what else? So, um, yeah, so then he, he holds a meeting, and he says... Yeah, there's no, there's no kosher down in Augusta uh, no, at that time. No, I can imagine. No. So there's... Uh, um, he holds a meeting. He says, "Well, here's the thing, fellas. Obviously, the recording end of the business, James Brown Productions, is moving to New York and Polydor. We got nice offices, and it's going to be great. But the James Brown Show offices are going to be in Augusta. Now that I've moved back home, I want my office in Augusta. We already rented a space. It's going to be perfect." Instead of sharing one office, as the ways of Cincinnati thing was, we were really in pretty cramped quarters, and all of us had desks in the same room, kind of stumbling over each other, and you know couldn't have a private phone call because everybody heard everything you said. But Mr. Leeds, you're going to have your own office. Mr. Nolan, you're going to have your own office. Leon Austin's wife's going to be the receptionist. She's been to school. She's going to be real good at that, you know, this and that and this and that. And the cost of living there is great. And 
there's no entertainment scene, so we're going to run things. We're going to promote all the local shows that come through town. We're going to expand our business. You guys are not just going to promote my show. You're going to promote shows with my radio station down there. And we'll have all the big shows, and maybe we'll open up a nightclub. And, I mean, he had this whole idea for revitalizing the scene in Augusta. And I just looked at him like he was like he was out of his mind. And it's like, look at me. I'm a crazy kid with a Jew fro out to here. And you think I'm going to live in Augusta, Georgia? And I had already visited Augusta a couple times with him, you know, because he just happened to be on tour down south and coming through. So I had been to Augusta. I mean, there was like one movie theater, you know, that showed Gone with the Wind every weekend. You know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I was like, no, no. Please, no, please, exactly. please, no. <laughs> um, so long and short of it, Buddy Nolan quit. He went on to Philadelphia and started working with Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes. And um, and I said, Mr. Brown, I just, I don't, I don't know, I got I to gotta think about this. Got to think about this. And he said, well, if you got to think about it, I still got a show to run it. I said, well, I can do that from my phone right here in my apartment in Cincinnati while I think about this. And he said, well, don't think too long, son. Time's are moving. And it's a great opportunity. You could, you can become a rich man in Augusta. You don't understand that. It's virgin territory. He gave me this whole hype and so on and so on. Fell on deaf ears. So I actually, actually quit. Stayed in Cincinnati for about three months. And then finally I got a call out of desperation from Johnny Terry, who was one of the original famous flames, but James had hired him to help run the show. And Bob Patton, who was also from Cincinnati, had gone back to work for Brown. And they called me together and said, we were just, we're, we're losing a fighting, we're fighting a losing battle here. We do, we need you. And yeah. quite honestly, after three months of not working and not really wanting to stay in Cincinnati, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. And, you know, do I move to New York and look for work? What do I do? Um, so I just said, okay, I got nothing to lose. Let me, let me get in my car and drive down there and just see where this goes. Well, of course, Brown, I, my wayward son, I knew you'd end up here. I knew you'd see, I knew you'd smell the roses. I knew you'd see the opportunity. I knew you'd come to your senses, son. You always do. Takes you a little longer than most, but you always do. You know, so here I am in Augusta. And, um, the pat on the yeah. head and, the, and, and, and a little knife stab always, at the same time. Always, always. <laughs> the, the, the biggest lesson you learn with James Brown is nothing is free. But right. the one thing right. I can say about the James Brown family, just to bring all this back together again, is that is that as, as tyrannical as he could be, if you were willing to kiss the ring and eat a little crow, you could always go home. He never threw you yeah. all the way yeah. under the well, bus. He, he, no, I think you know, that's obvious uh, with, with what you said about the reunions yeah. at the funerals. You know, all those people... Uh, you know, went through the same things you did, and they still yeah. love the man. Yeah, and and, and it's it's almost intellectually hard to explain that somebody can screw you over and you stay loyal. Um, 
Well, like I said, he's a kind of a benevolent yeah. dictator, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it's it's you know, it's 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 a bit of a drug in in some ways, uh, and at the at the same time, it is opportunity, and he just was able to kind of thread that needle. Uh, out there, and, and and you know, I love how you say that Soul Brother Number One considered himself a businessman first, entertainer second, and musician third. And in some ways, yeah, like you know, his salesmanship was definitely really good on the businessman. But I also found reading your book, his business acumen a little dubious Absolutely. at best. Uh, but. But you can you you can't say that as an entertainer and musician. He's extraordinary, omnipotent even. But yet he considered that those second and third. I, I it's just it's a weird dichotomy that. Uh, that well, I, I I think I think first of all it's you know there's I hate doing this because he doesn't have the evil intent that Donald Trump does, but there are similarities as to how they transact their business. In the sense that James, up front, here's the disclaimer: James is neither as evil-minded nor as dishonest as Donald no. Trump. Oh, okay. However, right. he is a uber-level self-promoter, and he thought of himself as the Mister, the King of the Deal Makers. And a lot of that idea of putting business first was designed to get respect. The biggest thing James Brown ever wanted out of life wasn't money, wasn't hit records. It was respect. Respect. And he would tell you that yeah. in a heartbeat. And it was the one time you knew he was not exaggerating. He's like, look, my struggle has always been just to be looked at as a man, not a boy, not yeah. a black man, yeah. just a man. Oh, and from his his roots and where you he understood started, uh, as, as we, we, we have, uh, have talked about in several of our shows, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure you get much lower at a no. beginning than he. No, no, it's it, it, it's I mean, remarkable odds against him, and and yeah. at, at every level disrespect, and no sense of being respected as 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 an ordinary man. Period. Just that, yeah. not a rich man. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you come from a broken home where your mother left you when you were in single digits. And you drop out of school in the sixth or seventh grade. And, and your father dumps you off in, 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 in an aunt's whorehouse, brothel. And this is yeah. how you grow up. You know. And it's, it's amazing he was able to achieve the yeah, things he did. And, and, it, 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 I mean, it really is. And, uh, you know, I mean, like we, you know, both agree, you know, he had this just like, uh, you know, like I said, omnipotent musical talent. And he wasn't even a, really a musician. It was all it was all in his head. He understood it and he could articulate it uh, through his voice and and just his sheer mm -hmm. personality. It's just it's, it is a really one of a kind story in the annals of history uh, of music. History. Yeah, I think I mean, there's obviously a lot of guys. I mean, you even look at Elvis that came from a really impoverished background. But but when you look at, at James's situation, it was like just. just oh, I mean, Elvis required Colonel Tom Parker to run things. James yeah, that's did. true. That's true. I mean, he had to listen. He 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 was Elvis and right, Colonel Tom right, Parker. Right. It, yeah. After a while, but 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 he was he was, you know, he was remarkably ambitious and and tenacious even, and he was a quick learner. 
I mean, you know, the yeah. fact that he didn't finish school didn't stop him from being, I mean, James Brown was one of the brightest, quickest minds I've ever met in my life. The, the thing that compromised his business acumen was ego. It was simply ego. Uh, and, and, and Well, you could say the same thing about that, uh, that guy shitting all over the White yeah, House. Yeah, of course. Of course, but 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 I mean, he he would he would he 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 could be twisted into making bad deals that um, weren't in his best interest, and they were almost always because of of some ego element involved in the bad decision. But anybody who played him for being stupid got their feelings hurt real quick because he was sharp as a tack, and and um, yeah yeah and you know he. And, and he saw so many entertainers that were just out there for the get high and the broads. They, they just excuse the expression. I'm trying to be woke, but I don't know where broads came from. But you know, there there were there were tons of <laughs> yeah, the sex sex exactly. drugs and rock and roll exactly. Huh? exactly. And and yeah. you know, he looked at his peers and said, okay, all they do out here, they don't even read their contracts. They don't even know how much they're getting paid because they're giving all the money to girls and and buying dope and doing this and doing that and 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 they don't get respected. And he was like, I'm going to yeah, be respected. Yeah. And they all get, you know, particularly in the era he was coming up, artists were treated like dirt by managers and promoters who would patronize them and pat them on the back. Oh, and I'm a dozen. They could always find another exactly. one down the street. And, on, the, on the corner is a hundred. And that was the attitude. Yeah, and James, just, James was determined arts. not to be that guy, that he wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to allow himself to be treated that way. And he designed himself to be the entertainer that couldn't be easily replaced. And yeah, and, yeah. and and while while he certainly was an uh, an old school dictator, he still had an open heart to to certain people that caught his attention, uh, or or maybe reminded him of his roots, like that. Shushan. Oh, no question, no question, no question. He had to see, he listen. James Brown was one of the sub. The, I've I've always said that he was so hard on the outside to cover up the fact that he was so soft on the inside. I mean, this, this is a guy that if 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 you had a bad show, might fine you just like he fined the musicians. He would occasionally try to find us, or if not find us, would screw us over on our expense reports. Like we'd have a bunch of receipts from, well, you know, I went to three cities last week to do advanced promotion for the upcoming shows. Oh, uh, let me see the receipts. And they, well, I can't pay this. And he'd come up with some cock and bull excuse for not paying a plane ticket or a hotel bill or something. And you would just sit there and shrug and say, what do you mean? I'm doing this. This is part of the job. You told me to go to Chicago, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, what do you yeah. think? I got a house in Chicago? I'm supposed to sleep in the subway? How are you not going to reimburse me? But then you'd be out with him to dinner in a restaurant three nights later, and he'd slip you 300 bucks under the table and say, son, I just want you to know you're working hard for me. I appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And, and, and like I said, the you know, <laughs> uh, other tyrants, when they threw with you, they threw with you. They throw you under the bus and hope you get run over for good. But he, he wouldn't do that. He would fire you, and he might even push you in the direction of the bus, but he wouldn't throw you under. He always left that yeah. door cracked. And if you were willing to kiss the ring and eat a little crow, you could come home. And and um, nice. and a lot of us yeah. did. And that, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, we stayed friendly up until the day he died. And, you know, we didn't see each other often, but maybe twice a year, three times a year. He'd ring my phone. I don't know where, son, it's your godfather. What you doing? 
<laughs> I'm that little purple prince, you know, <laughs> and just, uh, you yep, know, yep. And, and just, just, just talk. How's the family? Yeah. You know, it was normal. Yeah. Prince never called. In 10 years I worked for Prince, he never called and said, how's the family? He only called if he wanted something. Now, I don't hold that against him. Yeah. But it you, were, was, you, were, you were strictly Yeah, an it's a different, different yeah. kind of relationship. That's all. It's, it's not good yeah. or bad. But, I mean, with James, it was like at some point, he's going to touch base and say, yeah, son, we ain't talking well. How you doing? Oh, man. You know, and, and it, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, his, his, his daughter calls me Uncle Alan. You know, this, 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 this is what it, what it is. And, um, and it all came from him. It all came from him. We're all in touch with each other. And all of our relationships are only because of him. And um, the role he played in, in defining our lives. And, I mean, he taught me the business. And, t- and taught me yeah, things I didn't have you, uh, to, that he didn't you... have to. You know, he could have just said, do what you do, and as long as it's okay, I'll keep to myself. But, but you know, he would talk to me about the, the, the different characters and the history of it, and and we'd ride around cities that we'd be on tour and, and ride around cities, and he'd point out to old theaters that he used to play when he was coming up, and he'd start talking about the capacities of the theaters and the size of the dressing rooms. I mean, his memory was incredible. And it it, it, wow. it was Great just stories. just it was a privilege to be around that stuff for a young guy breaking into business. There, there, it was the best school I could have gone to. Oh, yeah. Now, <clears throat> you know, you 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 do have a somewhat unique experience of of watching America try to deal with its original sin of this country, and and you talk about it through throughout the book. I mean, you you've worked mostly with black artists throughout mm-hmm. the decades, including the almighty purple one. Um, how has it changed, and, and where are we today, in your opinion? Well, thanks to our president. I always say we're not going back. And, and, and yeah. obviously, black America is of the same mind, and we're not going back. It's not going to happen. No. But I do think that there is a fear amongst some Anglo-Protestant males that the coloring of America is fearsome, bothersome on a whole bunch of levels, and that a lot of this is really just about white man's last stand in a sense of trying to retain all of the authority and all of the power from falling into the hands of of the others, whether it's Jews or African Americans or Latino Americans or Asian Americans or any. Do you mean our pluralistic exactly. society yeah. that yeah. we the, have. the America that we <laughs> yeah, actually that just, are, yeah. exactly that we have become, <laughs> yeah. and I think that there is just this this fear of relinquishing um, power, authority, and wealth in into hands other than those old white men, and and the only way to do it because of the numbers when you play the numbers game, the only way to do it is to either cheat or change the rules. And that's, exactly, that's exactly what this government, this administration, is guilty of doing. Oh, I, and, and to ignore just reality and facts. Well, of course. 
Of course, of course, because the facts don't serve their goal. And, 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 no, we're in crazy land. In yeah. a democracy, despite the electoral college, in a democracy, at least idealistically, the guy who gets the most votes wins. That's a guy, you know, male or man or woman who gets the most votes. <laughs> yeah, wins. in theory. In, in theory. theory. And, yes. and most yeah. times it's true. I mean, we've had a couple of electoral college very decisions recently, most sickeningly Trump. Yeah. But, Especially over the yeah, last 20 but, years. But nonetheless, it's, 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 even in electoral college, it's usually the person who got the popular vote. Now, if you don't have the numbers, if all of a sudden the others, the browning of America, as they say, is increasing in the numbers and they become the majority, then you can't win. You can't win at a level playing field. So the only way to change it and retain the power is get rid of the democracy. And that's unfortunately what we see happening. Now, I, I can't speak for the personal intent of any one politician, be it McDonald or any of these other crazy Republicans. I'm sure individually they all have their own reasons. Some of them may have absolutely nothing to do with race. But the effect is the same. The effect is old white men are going to keep the power and the money, and you're not. And that's how I would assume I can't speak for black America, nor should I, but I have to assume that that's how most African Americans with any sense see this, and an see awful lot today. of white Americans see it. And uh, Asian Americans, Latin Americans, et cetera, et cetera. How can you not? Because on a daily basis, we've become numbed by the amount of cheating and changing of the rules um, without even going through the process to legally change them. They just arbitrarily stand up and say, well, we're just going to ignore that rule. Yeah, that's what the Constitution says. Fuck it. Who cares? You know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the most obvious uh, being uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court pick of... Uh, right, exactly. Exactly. And and it, it, I, I mean, I just to me, that's just the most egregious black and yep. white form of of going against the Constitution. I mean, I mean, I even argue that. Wait a minute. You guys are supposed to be the party of religion. And, and that's actually God's pick. God determines when, when that, that happens. Exactly. Opens. <laughs> so right. And now you you've stolen it. You didn't steal it from Democrats. You stole it from God when you when you get yep. right down to it. And uh, I just I, I just and, and the, the other side, sometimes we're, we're not really good at, at fighting until our backs against the wall. And that's the that's the unfortunate thing is that. You know, if this continues, that's what's going to happen. And, and you know, just like the last time we we had a civil war, a lot of people are going to die. There's going to be blood, but uh, you no, know, it, the, it, the the right it, side it, will it, win. You know, well, the right well, side well, will no. win. I mean, it it could reach that. I'd certainly hope and pray it doesn't. Um, um, no, I, I mean, there's certainly already an uptick in 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 the violence that's that's related to political extremists, but um. But I'm not yet at the point where I fear going out of the house or having a conversation like this that would be made public. Um, you know, we're, we're not right. quite there yet. We're um, not quite but, there yet. But, you know, yeah. it, you, you can see it coming if this isn't stopped. And I think, honestly, my biggest frustration is with the Democrats for not being more direct about what's going on. 
I listen to the debates, and, and and I have no problem with any of the Democratic candidates. I don't think we have an ideal candidate who has the charisma and electability that would be able to unify. Oh, well, we don't have an Obama. Exactly. That's right. but, That's right. but I'm not a hater. But, but that, 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 those guys don't come around. This is very true. Often, so. This is true. <laughs> yeah. Let's get let's get back to this and finish up here. Let me let me ask you one Prince story because it's so intriguing, and and that is when he went to you. You brought him to a James Brown show when you were working for him, and when you asked him if he wanted to go backstage, he declined. And and even yeah. before the show, I I was surprised by that because Prince owes so much to Mr. Brown's legacy. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly he was inspired by him and, and, and influenced by him, of course. And others, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Sly, uh, you know, uh, uh, and yeah, other no question. Of the, the greatest uh, right, African-American but, but, artists but, uh, that came before him. He was an amalgamation right, of a but, lot of but those the influence, guys. Yeah, but, uh, but, but there's a lot of James no question, Brown in him, No too. question. I, th- I think he was just intimidating. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty funny because um, I didn't actually really? bring him to the show. We just both happened to be there. And um, oh. at, at First Avenue, when he would go to a show there, they would let him get in the sound booth so that he wasn't going to be bothered by the people. Yeah, yeah they're in and, Minneapolis. Yes, right. and, and, um, and we were standing next to each other in the, up in the, actually the lighting booth watching the show. And he would ask me little things like, why did he do that? Or why did they do that? Or when did that song come out? And we were, you know, talking just as any two guys interested in the show would chat a little bit and watch the show and um, about two-thirds of the way through and you know I just I just I, I knew that he had never met at that point he had never met Brown he later did but I knew he had never met him so I just turned to him and I said you want to go back and meet him after the show and I didn't even give thought to the question it just seemed like a normal question to ask and he turned to me and had to you'd have to know Prince to understand this but he had this certain look that was like it, it, it was it was a look that was basically telling you without words, are you crazy? Yeah, you exactly. Right. <laughs> so he gave me that kind of that kind of look and he said one word. He said, Why? And I was wow. like, Okay, wow. never mind. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't answer him. It was like that 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 why was a rhetorical why he didn't expect an answer. It was just, you know, like in other words, well, he he probably he, he too probably would have got the uh, uh, the pat on the no, head was and, uh, and, and the and the digs as well. Uh, it's real simple. He was intimidated. He knew enough about yeah. James Brown from stories I told him and things he'd read and heard from Maceo and other people that he knew this was a guy who wasn't going to be impressed. You know, he would respect yeah. him. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know, but, he'd, no, he'd yeah, already yeah. done interviews where yeah. he, he thought that Prince needs to grow up and watch his language, you know, because Brown by then was on, by the 80s, he was on his clean up the language against hip hop and so on. You know, he was on that, on that dip and would do interviews and keep saying, I don't know why these young artists have to use that language. You know? And and I, I think Prince knew that he was going to get some kind of fatherly advice or lecture that would put him on the spot. I think he was just intimidated. James Brown yeah. is, is 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 James Brown was like a force. He was like a like a yeah like a, a, a God. I mean, I don't want to say a storm, but in a sense, I mean, it, it's like when he walked in a room, the air changed. You could have your back to the door and not even hear the door open, but you knew he was in the room. You could just feel his 
is he had a, or he had that kind of aura. Yeah. yeah. And um, the, yeah. the only yeah. and and Prince liked to think he did, but he really didn't. Not not with me anyway. Maybe to others. Not like the that. only other person I can think uh, of that was like that. I mean, maybe Obama if I had met him, but um, Muhammad Ali. Um. Yeah. I've met Ali three or four times and been in his presence. Yeah, I guess. But the person that said only really, really struck me that way was Miles Davis. Yeah. Oh, he he was yeah. another one. Then yeah. when he walked in, yeah. it was another just, force yeah, in real, nature, real force right. in nature. But but yeah. Prince knew that about James, and I just think he was just plain intimidated because Prince is a control yeah. freak about everything. Yeah. His studios, his performances, who gets on stage with him, every aspect of his life, he was a control freak. And he knew that in the presence of James Brown, you were not going to have control. The conversation might go anywhere. And he wasn't going right, to expose himself right, to a so. situation where he wasn't going to have control. And he was... Cons- Better for him yep, to stay away. Exactly. And... and yeah. And for fear yeah. that I might try to argue with him and persuade him to do it, he 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 ghosted. I mean, <laughs> he gave he, you the look, and, and then he ghosted. Oh, because we turned back and we're watching the show, and then I turned around about ten minutes later, and he was literally gone. And I didn't hear him move. I didn't feel him move. I didn't. I didn't realize. And we're we're standing pretty much next to each other. There's nobody in between us. I mean, we weren't close like hugging, you know. But there was you know, maybe two, three feet between us and standing together watching a show. And I never felt him leave. And I turned around. There was no sign of him. There was only one way out of that lighting booth, and that would have been for him to have turned around, walked behind me, and gone out and down the stairs. So, and and yeah, he sneaked totally out. ghosted. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, I get it. I, I want to leave with a, a couple of things here. Uh, my, first of all, my, my favorite story of the book is when uh, Mr. Brown goes to recut Please Please Me into a 12-minute all freestyle in one take from from Get on the Good album. Foot uh, album. And, and you were you were there. You were you were yep. in the room and saw this happen. I mean, it's 12 minutes long, and, and you're telling me that's all freestyle in yeah. one take. Well, I mean, you know, the song itself, the first three minutes are what he'd been singing for 20-some years, but um, then he just goes yeah. off on the vamp, and he starts talking about what it was like when he started out, and he starts name-calling, um, calling out the original Famous Flames and talking about them and talking to Bobby Bird, who was also in the studio at the time and reminiscing. And his voice had had, had a rasp to it that sounded really like a preacher. It, 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 it was, it was, yeah, it does. It was yeah, rough yeah. that night for some reason. Yeah. And it just gave an... Yeah. Unless famous, he did he did cop a, a bit of his act off the, oh, you know, no, the preachers. That the, all the fellow singers yeah, did, yeah. particularly him. Yeah. Yeah. But, but he even by his standards it, it, it had a, it had a kind of sandy sandpaper edge to it that night that that this this recitation benefited from and it, it was really quite stirring because it wasn't the typical way he extended I mean he was typical for extending songs and ad living I mean, a lot of his hit records the last five minutes of them were ad lib stuff but usually it was silly stuff. But this wasn't silly. This was like he really was off in his own. And it was it was very affecting. 
You know, I was a little disappointed when the record came out because the mix was very conservative and didn't really have the impact that it did live. But um, but it's still with a set of headphones, it's worth listening to because dude goes off, and it it it, yeah. it was yeah. Yeah, I yeah. listened. Yeah, yeah, with 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 this fresh perspective, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, you know that uh, that that made me go, wow, that's that is pretty amazing what he's doing there, and it's very sort of you know works like we were talking about at the very beginning. I mean, it's it's rap. It's he he's he's rapping yeah. right there, and and this is like seventy two. Yeah, right absolutely, so, absolutely. So, I mean, the the flow isn't what you would think of as hip hop flow. But because it predates no, it, but, but the concept's the same. Yeah. 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 All right. Let me let me quote from the book. You say James Brown taught me how to better appreciate the music I loved. Uh, he taught me about this country and its many faces. He demonstrated how to have hope when there is no hope. And he was living proof that if you believe in yourself sooner or later, someone will believe in you, too. Wow. I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure sharing this with you. It's it's fun to talk about. I appreciate that your audience is is uh, of of like minds. That um, as as diggers, they they care about this stuff. Because there's a long time I was writing liner notes for James Brown. Still do sometimes for James Brown reissues and stuff. And I, well, I, th I think you you're, you have a single Grammy. Yeah, I actually do. Yeah, you have a single Grammy for the liner notes for Star Time. And I and I believe the box set and and not the Grammy is your most. This prized is correct. Position. Yeah, actually, it's the booklet from the box set. I mean, obviously the music, but I yeah. could get that on any the computer if, I, if 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 the house burned <laughs> up. I can I can replace the the music's the easiest thing to place but before i grabbed i always tell people if the house catches fire once i know my family's safe the first thing i grab is not the grammy it's the booklet from star time because as the years have gone on that was in 1991 or two it came out as the years have gone on i've carried this book around and gotten just about every living survivor of the james brown world to have signed it so it's like, you know, I never finished college, so I don't have that, that yearbook with everybody's signatures, people you would forget about and never look yeah, up again yeah, in life. This is the closest but you this, have. This, right, is, this right, is my right. yearbook, and, and it's, it's you know, it's got personal notes from from the whole gang going back to some of his earliest musicians, and I think about 30, 40 people have signed it by now, and Bootsy drew a cartoon, and Bobby Bird, and Vicky, and... Obviously, Fred and Macy and so on, but James signed the front cover himself and said, thanks for helping with our Grammy, and he underlined the word our, O-U-R. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, you know, come on. As a kid who, you know, was daring to walk into the hood to get a James Brown record and to have something, you know, to have him write, Thanks for sharing our Grammy. Jesus Christ. I mean, doesn't get any better than that. Mr. Leeds, thank you so much for being with us on Deeper Digs. Man, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's, it's fun to talk about this and reminisce, particularly with people who actually have an interest and care about this stuff, because I really realized that, that you know, we're not curing cancer. We're just, just, just having fun. I yeah. was, Blessed for 50 years without having to take a real job and actually get paid for a hobby. So, I, 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 you know, I wish that luck on everybody. Watch me! Watch me! I got it! Watch me! 
joining us today lots of great stories about mr brown and we got a little bit of prince in there as well a wealth of information and i don't know about you but once again uh mr brown faults and all still comes across as yeah kind of a tough love father figure for alan and and a lot of others uh, and as we know from episode four of the rock and roll archaeology podcast from where he came uh, and all he endured as a child, he actually did rise above his lowly beginnings to become not only the amazing performer and innovator uh, that we all know and love, but, you know, a pretty good man, uh, all things considered. I, you know, he had his faults, his foibles, his issues, but, I mean, in the end, don't we all, you know, just most of us don't have to do it in public, and certainly at such a height of, of the spotlight as uh, James Brown did for, for decades. Please, go pick up Alan Leeds' new book, There Was a Time, James Brown, The Chitlin Circuit, and Me, from Post Hill Press. It's a fun read. Um, I had a great time uh, reading it and learning uh, uh, more about James Brown. Um, and, of course, hey, there, there's, there's a lot more info uh, on Mr. Brown than we touched upon in our, our interview with Alan Leeds today. All right. I, you know, I, I know it's hard to focus right now. It's been hard for me, too. Um you know, everything is just not looking good uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, we're, we're all in a state of suspended animation. It's hard to consider the future since we are all stuck just waiting out the present. Uh, I can feel it uh, out in the wide world. Uh, I felt it myself. I've, I've had days uh, where... Um, yeah, I guess you'd call it depression, uh, uncertainty, um, anxiety, uh, confusion. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it passes, um, I get back to it. Um, but, um, you know, this is, this is, I'm sure everybody's going through this and I, I feel for you and I understand, um, it seems reality is setting in and that this is much more than a temporary problem, um, that there will be consequences um, for a long time, even after um, the immediate danger of uh, the coronavirus itself um, has passed. Um, but it will, and we will move on. Um we will have some things change, and in some ways, um, you know, we we will all learn from this experience. You know, we we always do. Of course, some will want to go back to the way things were, and 
in some things, yeah, we'll go back to the way life was. Um, but in other ways, we won't. Life just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, you you can't ever really go back. We can only move forward. So we must get off our butts, having been knocked down, and get back in the game and create something better than what came before. And that has me thinking about James Brown. You know, like I said, and you probably know, Mr. Brown really did come from some of the lowest lows in American society. He got knocked down many times, and he got his ass back up and persevered. In some ways, like a fucking superhero. Be like Brown, I say. Be like the godfather of soul, soul brother number one, Mr. Dynamite, the hardest working man in show business. When you're feeling down and think, we ain't never getting out of this shit, go tell Alexa to put on the brown. Get down, get funky, get on the good foot. All right, that's what I got this week for you. Oh, um... And if you're so inclined, remember to head over to adamandeve.com to keep it spicy with your partner. Use the code D-I-G-S-DIGS at checkout for a ton of free stuff. Until then, I'll leave you with the most appropriate song as you make your selections. <laughs> keep up the rocking. Get up, get on. Get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up, get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up. Wait a minute, shake your arm, then use your palm. Stay on the scene. Like a sex machine, you got to have the feeling. Shoot your bone, get it together. Right on, right on. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.